Hey, it's Liz Kelly, and welcome to the Ringer Podcast Network. We hope The Ringer can provide you entertainment and companionship during this time. So as always, feel free to check out TheRinger.com, where we're still covering the latest in sports, pop culture, tech, and media. And The Ringer's YouTube channel can provide endless amounts of entertainment. You can find that at YouTube.com slash TheRinger. I'm Sean Fennessy, and this is The Big Picture, a conversation show about a miracle of movie watching. I'm talking, of course, about the Criterion Channel. The streaming service is celebrating its one-year anniversary this week, and for me, it's been a shelter in a storm. So what is the Criterion Channel? Way back in October 2008, the Warner Media and Criterion Collaboration Filmstruck closed. Six months later, the Criterion Collection rose in its place, preserving the spotlight on world cinema, classic Hollywood, documentary, female filmmakers, and specially curated series into a channel of its own. And basically from Jump, it became the most essential streaming service for cinephiles, combining the Janus Films permanent collection of Bergman and Fellini and Kurosawa, those movies with Howard Hawks and John Ford films, with all sorts of special collaborations in between. In its first year, it has launched dozens of cleverly designed monthly programs. An ode to oddball sci-fi 70s earlier this year is among my favorite things I've seen. The Criterion Collection is obviously the most hallowed name in home video entertainment, going all the way back to its launch with Laserdiscs back in 1984. The company has licensed and sold more than a thousand different titles in that time. Their releases are high-end fetish objects for physical media obsessives like myself, and they're priced as such. They include special features and original art, remastered transfers, the works. These discs are really expensive. But the channel is a downright bargain. For $99 a year or $10.99 a month, you can have a world of film history at your fingertips. Tens of thousands of hours of entertainment, education, and extras. My favorite thing about interviewing filmmakers on this show is getting to ask them not just about the movies they've made, but the movies they love. So to celebrate the miracle of Criterion Channel on its one-year anniversary, we rang up some of my friends of the show and some of the best directors on the planet to talk about the movies they're watching on the service and what you should look at too. At the end of the show, I'll have a conversation with Penelope Bartlett, the programmer of the channel and one of the key people responsible for what you see every time you fire it up. There are more life-changing movies on the channel than you could possibly imagine, but Before we get into those recommendations from our friends, I wanted to offer five fast ones of my own that you can watch on the service right now. So here's a brief top five. Number five. The women in his glamorous life. The hushed up scandals. His secret loves. His lost weekends. You want to be careful. Hoff's a man with a crocodile's temper. The Big Knife, directed by Robert Aldrich. Classic Hollywood story about classic Hollywood. I love a movie about making movies. The Big Knife is one of the best and one of the least known. It stars Jack Palance and Ida Lupino. Jack Palance plays a very successful Hollywood actor who's having a bit of a crisis of faith. It is a dark and simmering and slick and fascinating portrait of how Hollywood felt like it operated in 1955. I would recommend this for anybody who is as obsessed with Hollywood as I am. Number two. Tokyo Drifter by Seijun Suzuki, the late Seijun Suzuki, who one of the great Japanese stylists in world cinema history. He had a kind of neon, hyper-monochromatic, fascinating look at crime movies. Tokyo Drifter is probably his masterpiece. One of the slickest and most fascinating and most high art concepts on top of a crime film ever made. If you were interested in where Japanese cinema went after some of those Kurosawa and Mufune movies that we talked about last week on the show, I would definitely recommend you check out all of Suzuki's movies, but especially Tokyo Drifter. Number three. It all started the morning after Thanksgiving. After my sister's husband, Louis, left for work, she found a note. 
Yeah, it looked like a love letter written to Lewis. The day trippers. So, uh, Greg Matola. Greg Matola is somebody you might know from movies like Superbad or Adventureland. But Matola to me is the bard of Long Island. He is from the same hometown as me. And The Day Trippers is one of the best movies I've ever seen, not just about what Long Island families are like, but what people who grow up on Long Island, what kind of relationship they have to New York City. It's a very small story about a woman who's trying to determine whether or not her husband is cheating on him, but she does so on a long car trip with her entire family. Let me just say that this movie echoes inside me. It feels very specific to my own personal experiences. So that's The Day Trippers. Number two. Harlan, Kentucky is cold country where men work long hours for short wages, where poverty, black lung, and needless disaster are facts of life. In 1973, the men voted to join the United Mines. Harlan County, USA, directed by the great Barbara Koppel, one of the most significant and important documentary films ever made. This movie came out in 1976. It covers the Brookside strike, uh, an effort of 180 coal miners and their wives against the Duke Power Company. And it is one of the most profound representations of what a corporation will try to do to destroy people and what those people can do when they work together. Uh, it's also, it, it's truly representative of what happens when you just stick a camera in front of human beings and see how they react in extraordinary circumstances. I think the people that you see in, in, in this story are, which takes place in, largely in Harlan County, Kentucky, are um, people that we don't often see in movies and people who don't often get a chance to talk in movies. And that certainly includes the people who are suffering from black lung and who have to work in these coal mines, but it also includes the people that are trying to crush those people and it shows them talking in, um, in upsetting and, and harrowing ways. If you like the movie American Factory that we talked about a lot last year, which won Best Documentary at the Oscars, then I would highly recommend you check out this movie, which is really a, a precursor in many ways. And the last one I'll choose... The house. Wedding bells ring for the candidate and his lady. The most exciting power couple <laughs> since Lydia and Bob Dole. Yeah. But nothing is so not a movie. It's a series. It's called Tanner 88. It aired on, I believe, Showtime back in the 80s. It was made by the, the late, great Robert Altman, one of my favorite directors of all time. And it is a multi-part series that is depicting the slow rise of a president, uh, presidential campaign and a candidate played by Michael Murphy. We are in an election year. And let me tell you that politics don't really change very much. And if you go back and look at this movie, which is a, a wry and dark satire of the political process in America, you'll see that um, some of the things that we'll be thinking about come November uh, were resonant back in 1988 as well. So those are five that should give you about 15 hours of watching time over the next few weeks. But if that's not enough, um, I did want to talk to some people who know about this stuff even better than I do. Reached out to people who I've been, who I know have been spending their quarantine watching movies and have an incredible reservoir of knowledge and taste. So now let's talk to some pals about what we should watch. Uh, we'll start with with three of the best. We'll start with Josh Safty, who you may know as the co-creator of Uncut Gems and a frequent guest of this show and one of the greatest guys making movies around and then I'll also talk to Liz Hanna who is a screenwriter who co-wrote The Post and co-wrote Longshot and is co-writing a lot of movies that I think you're going to like in the future and then our old pal Sam Esmail back after the director's game to share some insights so let's go to those guys to start so I want the Celtics to cover I want the Celtics halftime I want Garnett points and rebounds what do you know I don't know I just know what's the dumbest bet I ever heard of I disagree. All right, look, let's do this thing. Let's do it's this my thing. birthday today, by the way. Oh, shit. Happy yeah, 36. Birthday. Thank um, you. 
Are you recording? You know, you got your own rig? Uh, I just I just have a little Zoom, guys, so I'm going to hit record now. Uh, all right, I'm recording. We got Josh Safty, birthday boy with us. Josh, how are you? <laughs> I'm all right. How are you guys doing? We're hanging in there, man. Um, I'm enjoying my core, by the way. I, I'm like, you know, I feel like my I've designed my living quarters for the past 15 years to be a bunker for the end of day end of times like all the records and books and movies and stuff like that and so i'm just kind of rediscovering stuff but yeah i've been i've been i've been uh devouring criterion channel some great stuff up there you notice they just put a bunch of stuff up like two weeks two days ago yeah man every the first of every month they drop a a treasure trove i saw they put a that a yorgos lanthimos movie i'd never even heard of (laughs) up to alps Alps? No, no, the is born before oh, Canada. 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 Yeah, yeah. I never Kineta's I never cool. heard of it. Canada's cool. Alps is like his is his uh, is like uh Canada's his like is kind of like his first movie. Uh but it, and it's good, but but uh Alps is um really special. That was the movie he made like when he couldn't um get the money for lobster together. So if you had to choose one movie out of this insane collection that keeps growing every day, what would be what would be your one suggestion for listeners of this show? My one suggestion, I would yeah. say the one the one that I'm that I'm the hottest on right now is is Atlantic City by Louis Maul. Uh, you guys see, you got the Burt Lancaster behind you, but uh, yeah, that that that's that went up there recently, like maybe like last week, and and um, it's a really fantastic regional movie pre Louis Maul's interest in like documentaries and documentaries of America, you can feel his interest in America. He somehow makes Atlantic city feel like the French Riviera at times. <laughs> uh, you know, you have, um, you have an incredible performance from Burt Lancaster really. And the character is so great. Like this small two time, very bottom of the, of the food chain gangster, uh, the gopher who like, you know, is just stuck taking care of a woman, uh, in his building and it's like pre major development of of uh, redevelopment of of Atlantic City. So the movie opens with this great destruction of a of a grand hotel. Uh, but it's it's great. It has um and Susan Sarandon is, I mean the op- opening is is definitely yeah. It makes you yes. look at lemons in a totally different way. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's worth checking out. Would be what we should say about it. Uh, and Wallace Shawn has like a little cameo in it because it's the year before he did my dinner with Andre, uh, which I which I don't love that movie, but it's cool. I prefer my breakfast with Blassie, <laughs> but uh, but it's uh, it's cool. I, I thought the movie fans, yeah, but a, I love that movie. I wish they should. I'm gonna write Criterion people and tell them to put that up on there because that's such a great movie, My Breakfast with Blassie. Uh, but but uh, yeah, no, I I love the movie and and um, you know, I I was surprised and I just started to read about it. And, um, you know, I, I was surprised to see it got all these big, I got every major Oscar nomination and, and, uh, but it was not a very, it was just not a commercial hit. Uh, it was, it was kind of a slept on movie. So that movie was my, that was actually my gateway drug to Louis Mall. Um, oh, really? Yeah. Because it had bigger names and it was American yeah, yeah, yeah. and, you know, it was easier to, it was easier to get that movie at Blockbuster than it was. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah, 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 for sure. I, I don't, you know. Like the, the gallows, or, yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, or, um, yeah. But t- just can you just talk a little bit about Mal and kind of like what he does and what makes him a special filmmaker? So, so in particular with Atlantic City, he he has and he got into this more and more. You can see like seeds of it uh, um, in in his career uh, is is his interest in 
the like the micro being expressive of the macro like he'll he'll start a scene on kids playing with an antenna uh going up and down the mobster's car from philly um and 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 he'll get into the scene through this small observation and he started to get more and more into smaller observations and and real people and and the cast feels very of atlantic city uh you know and and the entire thing is happenstance the entire movie is just kind of like well what is a what is a low level you know street kid do when he knows there's a dropbox uh in a in a um in a phone booth and that's how the whole plot rests upon the fact that this guy's just ripping off this drug deal i actually lived uh when i lived in like on madison street and lower east side like 10 years ago there was a phone booth on the corner that the phone didn't work but i would notice someone would go and use the phone uh every morning and then about 20 minutes later someone would go and use the phone quote unquote and and leave with something and one day i went in after the guy went in the first guy in the morning and i looked around and i saw that it was a stash it was a you know it was stupid of me i probably could have you know gotten in trouble but i i was just curious i just went in there and pretended to use the phone i'm sure the guy who was doing the pickup saw me go in there and was like oh shit uh we've been caught but um but yeah so i what the movie opens with that but but yeah there's the, the 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 small nature of that movie and i say small in like the, in like the grand sense you know that the that these small moments define us uh and these small characters are really like defining of 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 um of of a place uh in a specific time and ends up being an incredible document of of america i have a, a friend from philly he said that's like his favorite movie of all time you know he's born in the in the in the 70s it's 40 years i think since since that movie first came out it's an awesome pick i appreciate it josh oh yeah of course and also there's no score which is which is uh you know the move that's that like and he has fun with it you know he 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 has no score but he'll juice the diegetic score by by uh you know having her with her little radio running around playing actual you know music that that uh you know that he needs that's convenient amazing thank you man i appreciate this that was an awesome pick Okay, yeah, of course. I'm happy you're doing this. Criterion's, you know, they're like a, a godsend right now. You know, it, it's incredible that uh, we have this option. And 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 like, and if you if you want to go into the collection collection, you know, sometimes they'll they'll just put up a movie and you can stream that movie. But they have their collections on there as well. And the the police story one and two collection is unreal. It has so many extras. Just like. Probably, I'd say three and a half hours worth of extras on the police story one and two, like uh, tile or whatever it's called. Jackie Chan, it's it's great. That's my that's my secret other suggestion to everybody. Okay, we won't we won't dime on you for picking two movies when we're trying to hold everybody to one. But <laughs> you if can it's for use Jackie Chan. It's good. <laughs> in in classic safety fashion, as soon as we finished chatting with Josh, he realized that there was more he needed to say, more he needed to share more he needed to celebrate at Atlantic City so we gave him a call back what 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 compelled you what did you realize what triggered the like I need to be back in the mix on this I, I realized I, I got I got distracted by like the one actual extra outs outside in the apartment errand that had to get done so I just kind of like brushed my brushed my brain clean I realized I didn't talk about any of the awesome shit that makes this movie really special like like 
Robert, I love Robert Goulet, right? So Robert Goulet appearing, when you see him in the opening credits, you're like, wow, Robert Goulet's in this movie. Wasn't expecting that. And, you know, he has his one scene where he's singing, but it's a, it's, it's in the Frank Sinatra wing. You know what I mean? The specificity of this movie is so uh, uh, minute. I mean, the fact that uh, uh, the Lou character is running a numbers game in the in the black community of Atlantic City, and he's trusted, and he's running. It's and the and the tally is so sad. It's like two dollars and twenty cents. You know when he brings it in, and he's like he shows up the that when he goes around collecting. This guy is so low on the totem pole, but the specificity of that that there's this numbers game. Also, the you could just see Louis Mall like getting excited when he sees that um, uh, parking. The auto park, you know, the probably what was one of the first auto parking systems, and it has that great uh, chase scene. You know, the 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 to use that the the idea of like the the casino worker subculture, like the the fact that you know he did his research. He, the fact that you know Susan Sarandon's character wants has these aspirations of being a dealer in uh, Monte Carlo, but she's going to start as in like the clam bar, the oyster bar in Atlantic City. And then she ends up getting she ends up getting screwed because her husband's a felon and she you can't and she has that sleazy relationship with that French dude who's teaching her about card you know card dealing and he's distracting her and there's every single thing has a nuance to it uh, uh, even that weird house that she's like helping rebuild that everyone hangs out at and where he where he sleeps with her I mean that's I mean also the 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 excitement that. Uh, that Lou has at the end. I don't want to spoil it for people, but the, his excitement is so um, it's a paradox and it's awesome. It's really awesome. And he, and, and that, and that guy, that dude who runs that private card game who he sells all the Coke to, he, he keeps his money in his palm and a rubber band wrapped around his fist. I mean, there's so much awesome, so many awesome little details in this movie that make it that like, just what, just when you think it's on the, precipice of becoming somewhat schmaltzy it like gets grounded with some crazy detail let me ask you really quickly about this atlantic city the place uh-huh. so you you you've been there you spent some time I, there like i shot what, some of lenny cook there that's right yeah. so what do you what do you think the the movie gets right about it and what do you think it's trying to kind of myth make about it I mean, I think that the, I mean, having been to, we were going to shoot the ending of Gems was going to be in Atlantic City originally. Uh, it's probably more true to life that it would be Atlantic City. Uh, but I just needed the spirituality of Mohegan Sun. Uh, <laughs> but, but, um, but, <laughs> but the, uh, but, the, but yeah, Atlantic City's, you know, Atlantic City is a, a very um, bootleg Vegas. Uh, it has a, but there's a beauty to, to its, um, seediness. You know what I mean? At at the, 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 also in light of, of, uh, of, you know, the now I think Atlantic city, I was just reading has the golden nugget gave, made a really hard pitch to us to shoot there. And it was something about, they got some crazy amount of money from the state. I don't remember, but there's but there's a seediness to Atlantic City that goes back, obviously, to its beginning, uh, you know, hey, early heydays, and then, you know, I think with the movie, I think the movie gets it right that it was you sense that it was a it's living in the shadow of this grand time that it once had, uh, you know, in the early 20th century, uh, and it feels like the kind of like when you lift up a rock, uh when you're like say you're you're going to move a, a 
uh, move a rock away so you can put in a park bench. When you pick up that rock, there's all these weird like roly polies and things like that. That's what the, that movie has the vibe of all the roly polies running around and and uh, and the worms. Uh, what does it get? What does it kind of miss? I mean, I think that it has a little bit. It, I think at times it really does feel like like the French Riviera, but I think that's because of like I think Louis Mall is like maybe had a glass of port too much and like sometimes thought he was actually in the south of France uh instead of uh Jersey but um but but yeah so sometimes it has a little bit of a uh, uh I don't know how that he's even capable of achieving that it's just maybe like the way he just shoots it it just has a slightly like it's missing like every time I've been to Atlantic City you know there's a there's a sense of real trouble uh, that I could get into if I do the wrong thing or go the wrong place. And there's no, even though the movie is about trouble, there's a whimsical, there's a whimsy to the movie that kind of cuts that hard edge. Uh, so that, that, that to me is like, the, you know, but that's, it's, that's what kind of also is the charm of the movie too, is that it's a sweet movie and it's about these people who are in a dangerous world. But, you know, even murder has like a strange, uh, uh, whimsical nature to it. Yeah, like a good tri-state area boy, I had my bachelor party in Atlantic City, so I I, I know <laughs> from the trouble that you're you're talking about there, and it doesn't you got feel into some trouble. Well, you know, a reasonable <laughs> amount, I would say, a justifiable amount. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. But I do feel like it doesn't really. It it's it's kind of ultimately, even though there's tragedy, it's kind of a sweet movie. It's yes, got, like, totally, it's a very heartful movie. Totally, and AC is AC is it's grimy, dude. hard and. Yeah, it's grimy for sure. No, but it's but you know there's like some fucked up shit happens in this movie. Mo, I mean, also that's true. I, but it, but I but it's weird. It's just Louis Maul just doesn't he doesn't it doesn't feel dangerous. Like if Abel Ferrer made that movie, you know it would have felt very dangerous, and it would have been like, ooh, Atlantic City is kind of tough. You know what I mean? Uh, it was also when I was watching the credits, I saw that the it was like a Canadian. You know how's you know how like her she's from Sasquatch Sasquatch how do you say that um uh uh she's Saskatchewan. from Saskatchewan I never know how to say that he's she's from she's Saskatchewan. not a Sasquatch <laughs> <laughs> she's definitely not a Sasquatch no she's from Saskatchewan <laughs> I still can't say it and uh, I think that's that's how they got money from Canada she just like they had to have mm-hmm. a plot point John Guar like wrote that in but I love the detail of like the sister being a Hari Krishna. Do you remember what after they ransacked the apartment? She's sitting in the bathtub just saying doing her Hare Krishna they basically davening back and forth. It's great. There's all the details are great. I mean that 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 aging beauty that Lou works for, her little bell that rings him to bring him down. And she she knows everything he does. She thinks he's so pathetic, but also totally in love with him. It's a cool movie. There's a lot of good details, but it, you're right. It definitely there's a sweetness to the film, even though some fucked up shit happens in it. That it that that it ultimately that that undercuts that hard edge of Atlantic City. But I don't know if the movie would have worked if it didn't have that to it. You could also see him. I love his documentary, um, Pursuit of Happiness and the Pursuit of Happiness. And you can see him start that interest too in America, like the the part of America that's like very aspirational. Uh that I think he's just like he's totally enamored with it. And you can see that in the beginning here. I think that doc is also on the Criterion channel, right? It, it totally is. Yeah, it totally is. Yeah, that was an eclipse. Was one of their eclipse discs, and it was. Um, yeah, that's I, that's a really cool movie. Pretty sure that's on there. 
These are great. I'm glad you came back to, to yeah, give me more too. details. I, I do want to say it's amazing that the first detail that you remembered was Sarandon and the lemons. I, I will never forget that you, did, <laughs> you, you put your finger on that one pretty quickly. You couldn't forget that. How are you supposed to forget the lemons? Even even Lou asks her, what's up with the lemons? What's up with the lemons? <laughs> and it's and it is a mystery in the movie. She does she does she does, you know, let you in on her secret, but but it's a it's a very provocative secret. And it makes sense too when you when you when she reveals it, you're like, oh yeah, I guess that makes a lot of sense. I might need to fire <laughs> that movie back up. Uh thanks, Josh. I appreciate it, dude. Thanks, Sean. Do you have the papers? Not yet. This is a devastating security breach that was leaked out of the Pentagon. I don't even know how we're going to do intros and everything yet, but I'll just very quickly like tee you up. Okay, cool. Sounds good. Here we go. Three, two, one. Hey, we've got screenwriter Liz Hanna here to make a recommendation. Liz, what have you been watching on the Criterion channel and what do you want people to watch? Um, so I think there's, first of all, there's amazing, uh, there's an amazing, uh, group of options there. There's a wide ranging, um, from foreign films to classic films, comedy and drama. Uh, my pick is actually a documentary, which is the complete Monterey pop festival by DA Pennebaker. I love it. Why did you choose that? So, uh, I think it's, it's first of all, something that not a lot of people have watched. It's, it's kind of been around. I didn't watch it until recently, actually, like in the last few years. Um, and it's really kind of been surpassed by Woodstock as you know, Woodstock came two years later and is the world renowned kind of, uh, music of the sixties festival. Um, but Monterey Pop was first, and it was the first uh, time Janis Joplin performed in front of like a large audience. Um, and it was Otis Redding's introduction kind of like to the world. Like he'd been obviously Otis Redding for years and years and years, but this was like his kind of uh, debut for a much larger audience. And if you want to just watch 15 minutes of amazing, uh, of an amazing performance and amazing cinema, you just watch his performance. Um so I, I find it, A, fascinating. It's this caps, capsule of time from, you know, 1967. It's also music that we, of our generation, kind of grew up with. My husband and I were talking about it last night, and we were like, when we were born in the 80s, it was less than 20 years from when that had been released. Um, so it was the music of our generation, of our parents' generation. Um, so it was stuff we grew up listening to. But it's also in this era we're living in of not being able to leave the house and consuming everything. Uh, I have found it very like comfort food to have on in the background. And it's a way to be engaged in something that's not social media or the news and be entertained, but I'm not being forced to like analyze something or, you know, really it's not requiring me to spend two and a half hours of paying full attention. Yeah, no, that's a great, it's a really great pick. It also is a reminder that once upon a time there was communal life when yes. thousands of people gathered to hang out and have fun and watch music. I, that feels like it was happening 10 years ago. Um, Penny Baker is such an interesting figure. He obviously, he made a, a Bob Dylan documentary. He's one of the, you know, he just passed away last year. He's one of the signature documentarians of his era. This one is such a good pick because the variance that you get of performers in this festival. Like mm -hmm. I, I had always wanted to be at this show more than Woodstock. If you Absolutely. look at the different kinds of artists that are here, you know, like 
Um, the Who played here, Otis Redding, you mentioned, The Mamas and the Papas, Simon and Garfunkel. You know, there's a very famous Jimi Hendrix performance from there. Yeah. I feel like that that's something that you would see like in clip shows all the time growing up. Are you like a big concert film person or is it there's just something about this one that clicks for you? Um, I'm in certain, I think in the way that certain, in the way that people are concert film fans in terms of like, stop making sense, you know, I, like, I think stop making sense, which is also on the criterion channel. I know I'm not allowed to, yes. but just FYI, it is there. <laughs> um, but I like, you know, I think things for me that are, are as engaging as, uh, going to a concert, I don't really watch, you know, like just YouTube videos of performances, but I think, it, you know, again, in this time where it's like, I can't just watch people. It's weird for me to watch television now that's from like a week ago and have people walking down the hallway and talking to each other. That feels like that sends me into a weird panic, but watching this communal activity and about something and music that is so, um, it crosses generational lines and it crosses every it's it's the it's kind of the one uniter that we all have and so i think it's really lovely to be able to kind of watch that now let me ask you a question as you've gotten just a little bit older do you find that it's more difficult to go to concerts yeah my feet hurt i'm really yeah, old me too i'm, I know. <laughs> I'm just not cool anymore i'm like i I, know. I don't we went to a concert recently and i was like my knee hurts can we sit <laughs> where do we sit it's, I have the same feeling. It's it's terrible. And like I can't go to concerts was such a big part of my 20s and my 30s. I have found that it's much easier to just sit on the couch and watch Monterey pop than to get out into the world. Yeah. And I, I'm just, I mean, for me, it's also like when I love that people get into it and standing up, but I'm like, you're blocking it. If I, if you sit down, I could watch this also. And we'd all be sitting and enjoying it. Um, there will be yeah. nobody blocking your view if you turn on Monterey pop. So uh, it's exactly, exactly. Well, thanks, Liz. I appreciate this. Thank you. There's a powerful group of people out there that are secretly running the world. I'm talking about the guys no one knows about, the guys that are invisible. The top 1% of the top 1%, the guys that play God without permission. I think I, I'm here. Someone there? Hi, Sam. I'm here. Yeah. Hey. <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm recording right now, so you want to you jump right into it? So, well, tell me again. So, this was like the one pick from the Criterion Channel, right? That's yes. that was the that was the role. Yeah. Well, there, there's obviously this is a very, very, very tough decision. Um, there's so many great films, and I, 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 and you know, especially right now, where people can 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 just start, you know, binging and watching all the great masters. By the way, the film I'm I'm, I'm going to tell you in a second. I discovered because it was a, it was a, it was the summer before film school and they had released it was a, the summer before I went to AFI and AFI had released their like 100 it was instead of like a, a reading list it was a movie watching list and so that summer I just binged all these great classics and honestly so just anybody listening out there just just go into Criterion and just start watching some stuff I mean they're they're some of the greatest pieces of work you'll ever see and you'll fall in love with certain filmmakers and the filmmaker i ended up falling in love with was uh bunuel louis bunuel i the film that was on the list was belle de jour but that's not the film that i ended up just falling in love with the film i 
I still hold in high regard and still probably consider it my favorite film of all time is the discreet charm of, of the bourgeoisie. It's a great pick. Tell me, tell me why. I have you seen, seen it a long time? I have. Yeah, I haven't seen it in a long time though. Um, I think we talked a little bit about this in your on your on on the pod when we were doing the 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 uh, director game, um, and you had picked Carpenter, which I was very jealous of uh, for the seventies. And it's a little similar to how I feel about Carpenter in that Benoit is so creative and doesn't. Um, it doesn't let anything uh, 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 doesn't let anything slip by without considering it in the most imaginative, offbeat, quirky, uh, 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 in- inventive way. And um, and so, that, so a large part of the reason why I love this movie is that at every beat and every turn, he is constantly giving you these interesting ideas and. Um, and I always called this film the sort of the ultimate fuck plot movie. Um, <laughs> it, it, it was, uh, you know, I, 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 I've said that in interviews before, because to me, when you watch a movie and you, and you sort of process it and, you know, time goes by, it is not the plot mechanics of how characters go from one scene to another, et cetera. It is the experience and tone and vibe, um, that you, I think you take away from it. And, and, and it's all this creature with the bourgeoisie almost taunts you by refusing to adhere to any sort of plot. That's going to make any sense. The mechanics of how the character, and, and essentially the story, if, if you could even call it that is a group of six rich friends are trying to have a meal. They either are going to a restaurant or inviting people over for dinner or for lunch. And they can never quite actually sit down and have the meal. That's loosely what the story is about, but that's not what the movie's about. The movie's about all the stuff that happens in between. And honestly, it sort of defies logic in a way, intentionally. So like every time you think you're about to learn something about the plot, like one of the characters is an ambassador to a uh, a fictional country, Miranda. And as he's about, and he's gotten his two other friends there, and as he's about to sort of divulge some information about what he does, and you think, okay, here we go, here's the story, a car drives by, and the sound sort of just overtakes the track, and you can't hear any of the dialogue. And that happens multiple times throughout the movie. So he's intentionally trying to avoid you following any sort of threat, and in fact, I think that's honestly the the the, point, the 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 movie is essentially a bunch of disconnected episodes strung together, and sometimes you're in dreams, and sometimes you're in memories of minor characters, uh, and and then you're in and out of them. Um, and I don't want to spoil too much because I think the fun of it is like just dropping in and and not knowing any of the stuff that I just said. So in a weird way, I've already spoiled too much, but it's. It's uh, it. it rem- uh, I later then saw the show, Mister Show. Did you ever see that show, Mister Show? Bob Odenkirk. Of yeah, of course. Uh, hugely influential on me. Uh, yeah. Well, that that was a great show, and it kind of does something similar to that. If you remember how that sh- episode, how those episodes were structured, is you would start off in a story, and you would uh, they would do they would kind of lean on devices more. So you would start in a story, and it would turn into a news report, 
where and then you start to follow another character who's watching that news report and then that's a dream of somebody else's so that's a little bit the way to discreet charm of the bourgeoisie but it's less about the device and just more about i think thematically what bunuel and he, i think he did this in a lot of his films but specifically with this film this film was about capitalism and class done in that satirical way and it kind you know it's kind of fitting that we're talking about this in light of uh parasite uh my favorite film of of last year not your favorite not your number one right Num- number two it was number two number one was uh once upon a time in hollywood but it was um but the, the weird thing is in this film the the discreet journal of the bourgeoisie actually has these uh, the focus is n- is is not on the poor but on the rich so on the elites and none of these characters are redeemable you're not you're not really invested in them or or rooting for them i mean they treat the poor with so such callousness and and Bun- and bunuel because he doesn't have you know generally speaking when you are um when you're watching a movie there's an avatar of some kind there's a character or characters that you're rooting for, that you have empathy for, and you invest in, and that's sort of your way into the story. Bunuel, because of the artifice, and I mean, and I'm, I'm telling you in general, in the style of it, like even the sets look cheap and look like soap opera sets to, to a certain extent. And I think that's the point. He keeps this distance from you. He wants you to be very aware that you're watching a movie the entire time. And so it becomes more of an essay about elitism and about class and capitalism and less about a story and honestly a movie like that should not work when he sort of ignores the sort of rooting interest in characters and and places you in such a distance like that and places you in, in such an observer role like that and the, uh, the only other i was thinking about this because the only other film that i remember that kind of has a similar um relationship with the audience is 2001 where I, I'm not entirely sure if there's a specific character. I don't know if I'm necessarily rooting for Dave all that much, and he's also not even in the first 20 minutes of the film. I don't know. So sometimes I feel sympathy for Hal, but I don't necessarily know if I'm rooting for him either. So it's almost like an essay. And, and so, again, Discreet Charm to me is like on that level of a film that works so well despite the fact that you have zero emotional engagement. And it's all because of the wit and charm of the script and the direction. I mean, everything from the staging, you know, you have characters who are in the middle of conversation and a character who's not speaking all of a sudden walks in front of the frame and takes over the frame for 10 seconds for seemingly no reason and then walks away. Um, You have these incredible dream sequences of a character that literally will walk in as if on cue and he would he would tell this it would be a soldier telling this horrifying uh, memory slash dream. You kind of are not clear of how he grew up and how he poisoned his family. And then when that dream comes, and then when he sort of finishes telling that story, the our ensemble characters are complain are more outraged that the restaurant they're in doesn't have tea or coffee <laughs> and 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 it's just that sort of wit and excellent biting humor that just kind of always keeps you engaged no matter what and by the way this film is so political in in terms of what it's talking about with social i mean there at one point in the film a war breaks out 
And of course, the elite in the in the house are still trying to go on with dinner, you know, wondering if the house will be spared. Um, and then, you know, that the war takes a break for the general to come back in and invite them to dinner at his house. Um, it's so it, that's where I was going with it. It's so political. And this movie was made in 1972. And it doesn't feel dated at all. All the politics still apply to anything that we're going through right now. Um, it just shows how Bunuel has just a weird way of just sort of transcending. Uh, he sort of sort of tr transcends the conversation to really root it into what it means to live in a society where we have this sort of class disparity and um, and that the politics of it really don't matter when it comes to that. And so um, uh, if you want me to keep going or, or just just tell me one thing, Sam, tell me how how did this movie specifically influence what you try to do? I think the great thing about what Bunuel does is is the lack of self-seriousness. You know, when you watch his film, I, I'm not talking about just the screen charm, any of his films. I mean, you know, Exterminating Angel, uh, The Obscure Object of Desire, where, where, the, where the main characters, by the way, played by two different actresses, you, you, you see that he always is winking at you. Um, and there's something about that that really causes you to be entertained while actually being uh being provoked to think about these really like like what we just talked about really sort of horrifying things about what it means to be alive and it's that combination that i think is great um i never want one or the other i never want an empty comedy and i never want a self-serious uh drama i i want the i want my cake and eat it too and he that's what he does and that's sort of what i at least strive. I don't, you know, I'll leave it up to everybody else to decide how successful I am, but at least strive to have that mix. Cause I think that's always the winning combination because the one thing with Bunuel is you're going to have fun. He wants you to have fun. It's almost relentless. And the minute you, he, you, he, it's almost like he knows when you start to drift or get bored, he's almost, it's almost as if he's bored with whatever the plot is. And then he starts to switch to a different thread. And that that kind of energy. And by the way, I forget how old he was. He was. This was the last film he made. In fact, I think the film he made before this, Tristano, I think that was supposedly his last film. And then he couldn't because because uh, I think um, if, if I remember this correctly, I think he 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 felt he was getting repetitive. So he he was going to stop. And then he came up with this idea, and he wanted to make a movie about that repetition. So I think it's like that energy of Bunuel is what I strive for, is the idea that he's sort of relentless, relentlessly trying to entertain while also provoke you. And that's sort of what I, what I, what I go for in, in, in the stuff that I do. Sam, it's a, a great pick, and I appreciate you, and I hope you're staying safe, man. You too, man. Hi, Amy. How's it going? Sean, hello. How are you? I'm good. Hanging in there. Thank you for doing this. Oh, I'm so excited. I'm so excited to talk about this movie. All right, so I hit record. Let's do a movie. Let's do it. Yeah, you're, you're, a, you're a pro at home recording now. <laughs> I know. I love this new mic. 
It's like, what if we never go to the studio again? Okay. We're joined by our old pal, Amy Nicholson, co-host of Unspooled, film critic extraordinaire. Amy, you, you are a movie watcher of, of some caliber. What's your, what's your recommendation from the Criterion Channel? I'm going to recommend something a little random. It's not black and white. It is full on strange color. It is a movie from 1978 called Thank God It's Friday. It's a disco movie. Do you know this movie? I've never seen it. I just added it. So tell me about this movie. <gasps> oh, you're going to die. You're going to die. You're going to die. Okay. So it's from 1978. It is so disco that Donna Summer is a character in the movie. She <laughs> actually won an Oscar for this movie. This is the movie where she does that song, Last Dance. And it won an Oscar, which made Leonard Malton, a buddy I love, who, call- who called this movie a bomb. He said it was perhaps the worst film to have ever won some kind of an Academy Award. Oh, wow. So what's the story of the movie? Like, is it, a, is it take place in a disco? Oh, yeah. It not just takes place in a disco. It takes place in the most amazing disco. So I'll describe the disco and then I'll tell you a little bit about the characters. The disco here is called the Zoo Disco. And I mean, picture the inside. There's giant snakes on the walls. There's an elevator operator who wears a gorilla costume. There's like statues of penguins. There's statues of polar bears. It is wild. And it's actually shot in a disco that was a real disco here in L.A. in the 70s called Osco's Disco Club. So they just shot it there. It's like this space age looking disco on the outside. And so you feel really like you're visiting ancient L.A. They go to Tale of the Pup in this movie. I was like, oh, my God. I want to I get a time machine and live back in here. But, okay, here's what's going on in the disco, because it's just a lot, to be honest. There's, like, a couple single guys. There's a couple single girls. There's a single guy who's looking for this date that he's um, got set up with by computer, which is all sci-fi and futuristic, and he's this rageaholic, angry person. Um, there's this young couple. They've been married for five years, and she drags her husband to this club, and he doesn't want to go. She gets seduced by the um, club owner, the nightclub owner, for like a cash bet. If he can like seduce her, he wins a bunch of money. Um, and meanwhile, like her husband gets pulled away by this dental hygienist who's also crazy punk rock looking and has this like giant wig and gets him cracked out on all of these different drugs. Um, there's this DJ at the booth who's like live streaming his show to live streaming, who's like broadcasting his <laughs> disco hits to the radio. And he's all stressed out because he's trying to get the Commodores to show up on time. And then, of course, there's Donna Summer. She's playing like a kind of newbie wannabe disco star named Nicole. And her whole thing is trying to like break into the DJ booth and get him to play her song so that she can just become legendary. I mean, it's insane. There's like just tons of characters I didn't even mention. There's these two high school girls who are trying to win a dance contest so that they can get kiss tickets. There's a dude who just calls himself the Leatherman, And he does this like exuberant dance thing out in the parking lot on top of all these parked cars wearing like head to toe leather. And he starts yelling that dancing is the only thing that matters and everything else is bullshit. I mean, it's just the most amazing movie. Oh, and I left out the coolest part, which is the sleazy nightclub owner is played by none other than young Jeff Goldblum. Oh, wow. I can't believe I've missed this. So I saw that this was added to the channel's 70s style icons collection of movies. But, you know, the other movies that are in that collection are these really kind of like classy paranoia thrillers, you know, movies like Clute or, you know, like Three Days at the Condor, like that kind of a thing. This did not seem like that. Is, (laughs) is, is, Is the... Is the style actually good in this movie or is it oh, high God, camp? No. Oh, no, it's, it's, okay. That's what I thought. It looked no. terrible. I mean, a character at one point refers to the nightclub as Disneyland with tits. I mean, that's what you're getting into when you watch this movie. I will say I loved 
the absolute living hell out of it, though. That's an amazing recommend recommendation. Um, Amy, I, I appreciate you taking a little time out. I hope you're staying safe. Oh, I, I appreciate you maybe watching this film. And if you watch this film, you have to tell me what you think. I will hit you up as soon as I do. I'll watch it tonight. Thanks, Amy. <laughs> you got it. Thank you. Okay, let's take a quick break to hear a special word from Bill Simmons. Hey, it's Bill Simmons. I just wanted to make sure you were listening to podcasts on Spotify. Here's how you do it. First, search for your favorite podcast on Spotify's app. They have a library of over 750,000 pods at this point. So let's say you're searching for the Rewatchables or the Dave Chang Show or the Ringer NBA Show. Once you find them, click on the follow button. That's how you subscribe. Then click on those letters near the top of the app that say podcasts. All the pods you're following will pop up separated by episodes, downloads, and shows. Wait, it gets better. On Spotify, you can adjust the speed of the pods to seven different speeds. 0.5 times is the slowest. I actually sound drunk at 0.5. You can do 0.8 times, 1.2 times, which is my favorite. Everyone sounds like they just had a good cup of coffee. And then there's 1.5 times, 2 times, and if you're completely insane, 3 times. Anyway, Spotify's app connects directly to many of the best automobiles in the world. It even has a CarPlay feature that's pretty cool. Best of all, it's free. Download Spotify on any device and you're good to go. Should you be embarrassed that you're not listening to podcasts on Spotify? Well, I don't want to app shame you, but the answer, unfortunately, is yes. Make the move. Listen to podcasts on Spotify. Back to yours. Okay, we're back and we've got more friends ready to talk about movies. Had to go to our our pal Peyton Reed, the who you may know from the Ant-Man films and movies like Down With Love and Bring It On, who's got a great pick. We also got a chance to talk for the first time with Miranda July, who has an edition of Me and You and Everyone We Know uh, coming to Criterion later this year. And she's also got a new film coming to theaters, hopefully later this year called Gajillionaire. She gave us a great pick. And then we talked to our old pal Ari Aster, who of course you know from movies like Hereditary and Midsommar. He's got a great pick for us as well. So you have the force of a 200-pound man behind a fist a hundredth of an inch wide. You're like a bullet. You punch too hard, you kill someone too soft, it's a love tap. In other words, you have to know how to punch. I was in prison for three years. I don't know how to punch. Hi. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Good, man. Thanks for thanks for hopping on and doing this. Yeah. So tell me, uh, is it, you want to just record? Do you want picture, no picture? How do you, what are we, what are we doing? It's just all. Uh, we don't need picture. We're recording via Zoom. I assume you don't have any kind of audio ring in your in your home. I don't. I wish I did. That's okay. Is the sound shitty or extra shitty right now? What's the? This is honestly better than most of the calls I've had thus far. So I don't know why your fidelity is so strong, but it is strong. All right. Good. 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 I'm. I'm actually going to press record, Bobby. Are you ready? You got your pick. Yeah. Okay, Peyton Reed. Tell me what you. Uh, what are you suggesting for us on the Criterion Channel? Well, uh, my suggestion is, of course, uh, Paper Moon, Peter Bogdanovich, uh, 1973. I mean, I have to tell you, I have been recommending to people who've been holed up during this whole weird time, get Criterion Channel because it's like, what is it, 100 bucks for a year? And the curation on that, on that, on the channel is, is unbelievable. And it, it's, it's, there's such a breadth of stuff. Uh, Paper Moon, to me, was, uh, has always been a favorite. I actually saw it first run when it opened in 1973. I was nine. I was exactly the same age as Tatum O'Neill. Oh, wow. And unfortunately, at the time, I had a haircut that was shockingly similar to Addie Gray's <laughs> haircut in the movies. So my, my family would make fun of me. Um, 
But that movie has really stuck with me for many, many years and has aged incredibly well. And to me is uh, one of the great comedies of the 70s, obviously. And I think for me, one of the great comedies of all time. And one of the things I still marvel at in that movie is the comedic timing, but also that it's such a beautifully shot movie. And that's to me, in that, that peak Bogdanovich era, to me, he, he did four masterpieces in a row. Targets, Last Picture Show, What's Up Doc, and Paper Moon. I mean, that's, there are very few directors who have had four movies like that in a row. It's, it's unbelievable. And Paper Moon, to me, is my favorite. I love all those movies for different reasons. But Paper Moon, to me, is where kind of everything came together. And it's always been this guiding force in terms of people and filmmakers who love comedies and want to make comedies. Paper Moon is this sort of shining beacon in terms of everything is right about it. It it, it shows you that you can do a comedy that's spontaneous and hilarious, but also beautifully, beautifully shot. How is it specifically suffused your work? You know, I feel like the the way that he works with actors is so amazing. And the interplay that he has between uh, Tatum and Ryan is, is just like unreal. And also Madeline Kahn. I just remembered like her oh, yeah. e- e- extraordinary performance in that movie. Yeah. Trixie delight. Well, I mean, I think it's, it's, if you've ever seen those outtakes, I think they were on the DVD way back. Shockingly, I don't think paper moon is on Blu-ray. Uh, now I think maybe there's a British one, but in, in America it's not, but there were these outtakes, which, Bogdanovich clearly was a huge influence on Ryan O'Neill's comedic acting in What's Up Doc and Paper Moon. And in the Paper Moon outtakes, there were shots where they set up the shot and filmed Bogdanovich doing the Ryan O'Neill stuff. There's the thing where he gets up out of the bed and switches the the light off and everything. So you get a sense that he really was, that Ryan O'Neill was kind of a vessel for Peter Bogdanovich. He had such a clear idea of the comedic timing uh, of every moment in that movie. And there's a precisionism about the way it's shot. And it's legendary in a way that directors who want, you know, sort of the ultimate control over their thing to protect their movies from a studio, he would shoot literally only specific pieces of scenes and specific setups. So there were very limited ways that you could edit it. Um, And speaking of editing, you know, Verna Fields cut that movie. And she cut it, I think it was the same year she did American Graffiti and obviously not long before she did Sugarland Express and Jaws. But um, there's a precise nature to the way that it's shot. And it's, um, you know, a lot of times, and I've talked about this before, when we were making Down With Love, particularly it was like, you want the lighting to be just so and you want the lighting to be very specific, but that can sometimes fight the comedy and sort of the comedic performance. And it's this delicate dance. And Paper Moon to me is just the pinnacle of those Two things working together. Uh, it, it's and it's such a it's such an amazingly entertaining movie. I mean, Ryan O'Neill to me, Ryan O'Neill has three of the absolute most enjoyable comedic performances of the seventies. What's up, Doc? Paper Moon and Barry Lyndon. To me, those are like three brilliant and very different comedic performances. Uh, and I have I have the feeling that Bogdanovich was a large part of sort of training him in that regard and 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 realizing that he had a facility with it. But he is he's amazing and. The choice, of course, to shoot it in black and white. Bogdanovich always talked about how sort of uh, beautiful Ryan O'Neill and Tatum O'Neill were. Like they were very healthy and very California, and uh, that wasn't going to work in in the context of Paper Moon. And making it black and white not only sort of sold the, the period aspect of the movie, but also sort of you know cast them in a different light, very literally, uh, which I think was was a very smart choice. Peyton, 
I'm a little bit of a um, Bogdanovich file myself. Yeah. I'm always curious for people who really are passionate about him and care about him. Like, is there a later period, lesser known work of his that you dig or that you think is a little bit misunderstood? Well, I mean, St. Jack. Yeah, that's, a, that's, that's not, I mean, that's 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 kind of an obvious one. I mean, listen, I when he, I think, had not done a movie for eight or nine years and was going to do Cat's Meow. It was not long after I worked with Kirsten Dunst on uh, on Bring It On. And she told me, he's like, yeah, I think I'm going to do this movie called Cat's Meow with this director, Peter Bogdan. She, she couldn't pronounce his last name. And I was like, Peter Bogdanovich. And she's like, yeah, is he, what, what do you know about him? And of course, I went on to tell her probably way too much about what I knew about him. And like, yeah, so you know, he just, uh, he was a genius and he's done this amazing work. I said, but you, maybe be careful because I know he also likes young blondes a lot. <laughs> <laughs> but I love Cats Meow. I think Cats Meow is, I, I love that movie. Um, it is really fun. And, uh, and Noise is Off. Like that movie as well. I mean, there's a lot of sort of stuff, but there was just this firing on all cylinders quality that Paper Moon has. And, and it is interesting. Like we talked about Verna Fields editing it, but also the Polly Platt connection is always much discussed in terms of peak Bogdanovich. And if, if I'm remembering correctly, this is the last movie I think that they did together. Hey, that's a fact. Yeah. And, you know, there is a compelling argument to be made that like that partnership between the two of them was just uh, there was something that they gave each other that maybe was missing in the, in the later movies. Certainly in terms of like choosing the material and helping pick the material that Mike Donovich was doing, um, she was crucial. But yeah, I, I, uh, this is a movie that I have a lot of nostalgia for, but also like I try to eliminate that from... You know, when I watch the movie now, I don't want it to be a nostalgic experience. I just want to experience it and see how it plays today. And it's interesting because it does have this certain ironic detachment that was really sort of fresh at that point, for, particularly for a comedy. And it seems like time has caught up with the tone of that movie in a great way. It's an amazing pick. I'm glad you cited it. Bogdanovich is one of my heroes. Thanks, Peyton. I appreciate you doing this. All right. Thank you, Sean. If you weren't my children, would you think that guy looks okay? Are you mad at us? Yeah, totally. I think you look good. Okay. Hello. Hi. Hi. I have some very broken headphones. Oh, that's that's better than nothing. Hi. Can Can you hear hear? us? Yeah, I only only one ear of them works. Okay. Well, I'll just hold this one in my ear. Okay. Thank thank you for using broken equipment to power through this. I appreciate it. Um, I'm slightly embarrassed because like for me to really know a movie, it has to be something that I saw as a teenager, you know, um, and have watched every time since, which is, I I mean, whatever, they release only good movies. So one needn't um, feel embarrassed by any choice. Yeah. What did you, so what did you land on? What is the, what is the something that you found in your teenage years that you've held on to? Um, a Room with a View. Oh, great pick. So why that film? Well, I saw it. I should, I should check when that movie actually came out. I, I feel like I saw it when it came out and that I was maybe 14 and um, just prime territory to 
just live in a romantic dream world. And it's as if that movie is my experience of love or like how I lost my virginity or something like it's when I think about that movie, I don't think of it as like a movie. I think of it as like, um, how I came to be a woman or something like some event, you know, but I realized, Oh, that was all in my head. Like nothing actually happened to me, (laughs) but Helena bottom card, like she had her, that experience. Um, and I lived through her that summer. Um, and more or less for the rest of my life. Yeah. To this day. I mean, I've, I've probably seen it, um, just an insane amount of times. Yeah. What, what do you, do you find that you get something new when you return to a movie like that over and over again? Yeah. I mean, you, you all, you get to also look at yourself at all these ages, you know, like, um, like I'm not so overwhelmed by seeing what's his name. I should have checked everyone's names before. Um, we should all. Daniel Melius or Julian Sands, you mean? Yeah. Julian Sands. Julian yeah. Julian Sands. Yeah. Like, like, I think I was so overwhelmed by seeing his nudity, you know, as a young girl. And now I'm like, oh, right. Like, that, it's not doing as much for me now. Um, but, like, her, her beauty, her perfect little face um, is, is always incredible to watch. Um, and um, Daniel Day-Lewis also, like, not aging that well in that performance, to be totally honest. Um, <laughs> Like is just like so over the top, you know, Um, (laughs) like a parody, like could you stick out from the movie anymore? But it fits the role and it's like really good for the role. Well, I feel like Merchant Ivory has this reputation as being very stodgy and stiff and like homework for some people. But, you know, their films are pretty sensual. It seems like you had some awakenings watching this movie. I mean, like how did you how did you know to see a movie like this at 14 years old? Like how did it come into your life? Oh, um, you know, I grew up in Berkeley. I, I feel like that's a good question. If I actually like went to a theater or if it was a VHS rental, but there was a pretty good video store in Berkeley and I got, there were all kinds of things. I mean, I could have chosen like Jane Campion movies for this, but I felt like I should be honest about what I had seen more than anything. Um, yeah. So and it wasn't a it wasn't a big stretch. I mean, I grew up like watching like Stan Brackage movies that my dad showed me, you know. Um, and so, so this was like, um, yeah, fairly mainstream and very very eighties. That's like a very eighties movie, isn't it? It's sort of like that that Laura. I'm picturing just like Laura Ashley wallpaper. You might not that that phrase might not resonate with you. I know as much you, as it does you, with you, some of our listeners. You'd be surprised. You'd be surprised. Okay. okay. <laughs> um, just talking about like just floral prints and, uh, and that kind of, um, that kind of dress. God, what was these dresses that had these princess um, sort of bodices? Like there was a kind of over the top romanticness of the eighties that I think that movie, you know, plugged into and I was a teenage girl. So in some ways it wasn't, there was a lot um, sort of superficially happening as well. That was very resonant. And even, I feel like even in the hairstyles, even in Helena Bonham Carter's hair, it's like, 
it is oddly very 80s, even though the story is set in the early 20th century. It's like, <laughs> it's fascinating what right. a weird time capsule of a time capsule it is. Right, right. Yeah, I, I like there's um like if you watch uh, like Friends, there, there's like a certain kind of like arty woman that was allowed to have like big curly brown hair messily swept up, you know? Yeah. <laughs> um, and like, I think also for me, the whole reason to watch the movie is just for the point where the the dad of Julian Sands says like, you know, my dear, you know, don't, don't you love him? Don't you love my son? And she's she's kind of been, you know, unreadable for the whole movie. And she just breaks down and she's like, of course I do. Of course I love him. And she's just sobbing. And then she like runs after the, the, um, carriage or whatever. And is, I forget even what she's saying there, but she has to catch it in order to do something or call something off or call someone back or something. But she's just running and just how she like goes for it there. And like the total breakdown and abandon, that to me, I was like, if I could just do that again and again throughout my life, you know, like break down and admit complete desire, you know, that would be, that would be a great, let me just aspire to that again and again. So that's what the entire it? game plan of my life. <laughs> that's just an amazingly human impulse. <laughs> Thank you so much. Yeah. Uh, thank you. I really appreciate it, Miranda. Hopefully we'll see you for Kajillionaire soon. Yeah, that would be nice. Take care. Okay, bye-bye. I told you that I want to go to that festival in Sweden. No, you said it would be cool to go. Yeah, and then I got the opportunity and I decided Look, to I do it. I don't mind you going. I just wish you would have told me. That's all. Dude, she needs a therapist. I'm very glad to have Ari Aster back on the show. Ari, you are uh, your film scholar in a way. What's what's your Criterion Channel pick here? Well, I, you know, I, I I feel because I've been kind of like living on the the Criterion Channel for the last few weeks. I, I feel the urge to just sort of give you a, a laundry list. But um, uh, I guess I've been really uh, going back through uh, the films of the the, the Japanese New Wave. Um, I've been just navigating all of the, you know, anger and sadness and uh, just total feeling of, of impotence and, um, you know, of, of, of this last month. And those films, uh, particularly the films of uh, Shohei Imamura, Nagisa Oshima, and Teshigahara's films, uh, you know, there, there's a, an anger and... Uh, and an irreverence and a uh, uh, just a, a total um, rejection of just about everything <laughs> that uh, that has been sort of a, a balm for me lately. Um, I'm lobbing a bunch of films together to give one recommendation, but um, I would recommend uh, watching really anything by Imamura. Um, uh, especially the films he was making in the 60s and 70s. Uh, Insect Woman or Intentions of Murder are a great place to start. Um, Vengeance is Mine, Profound Desire of the Gods, uh, which he, uh, which which kind of ruined his career for a bit, and then he, he ended up 
not remaking it, but kind of revisiting a lot of its themes in uh, The Ballad of Narayama. And both of those films, Profound Desire of the Gods and Ballad of Narayama, uh, were kind of influences on me uh, when I was writing Midsommar. Um, and then uh, for Oshima, uh, who is, uh, is different from Imamura in that he kind of reinvented himself with every film. Imamura kind of just was always attacking the same themes, uh, um, playing on different variations on the theme of, uh, I guess, people who have just been fucked by society um, and, their, and their place in the hierarchy. Um, Oshima, who is much more experimental uh, and kind of doubly political, I would, I would recommend Boy uh, or uh, Death by Hanging um, or In the Realm of the Senses or Empire of Passion. Um, those are all very different films, but all kind of equally exciting. And then uh, for um, Hiroshi Teshigahara, who... Uh, is sort of an outlier in that he, he only made so many films before he um, went, uh, I guess, back to the family business of, uh, of flower arranging. Um, is that true? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and yeah, he was more of a Renaissance man. Um, and That's uh, staggering considering the films that he made. I know, I know. Well, his father, his father had um, uh, a business that... Um, that Teshigahara was always, I, I guess, supposed to move into, and then when his father died, he uh, he kind of he kind of took over the the family business. But he he he's very exciting for me, and um, his films are more, I guess, distinctly allegorical than uh, the other two filmmakers, and uh, and they're also. Uh, all of his best films are distinguished by his collaboration with the novelist Kobo Abe, uh, who is sort of a, a Japanese Kafka. Um, and I really recommend his books. Uh, but uh, he, he his, I guess the trilogy that he's best known for, if they're really a trilogy, they're all kind of totally um, disparate, but uh, are uh, Pitfall, Face of Another and Woman in the Dunes. Um, and they all make a lot of sense right now. Uh, and so I guess those are my, my, my recommendations for now. Yeah, uh, Woman in the Dunes in particular is quite a, quite a quarantine watch. It's kind of a quarantine Hall of Famer in a lot of ways. It's, it's really perfect for right now. Yeah, yeah. If you had to, if you out of, out of all three of those filmmakers, what is the first? What is the first film you think anybody should watch out of all their work that's available on the channel? Well, I I would say Imamura is the filmmaker I feel closest to. Um, he's he's just a really important filmmaker for me in general. Um, he's very funny. He uh, he just uh, his films are distinguished by this like wholesale rejection of sentimentality, which is especially exciting given the fact that he uh, makes films about people who are struggling through poverty. He really reminds me of, of Bunuel in, in the way that he 
kind of rejects the idea of the, you know, the, the noble peasant. Uh, and, and his films are very much about how if you put somebody in a desperate position, it doesn't necessarily bring the best out of them. Um, and I would say if I had to point to one film in particular, I would probably point to Profound Desire of the Gods, probably because it just feels like it's jammed, packed with uh, kind of everything I, I love about him. Um, it's, it's, it's maybe his longest film. And, um, and it, it, it seems to be the film that he kind of kept returning to throughout his career. It, it, um, it was a huge flop. And he, he didn't make another narrative film for, I mean, almost a decade after, uh, after it came out. But it, uh, it, it, it seems to kind of haunt his body of work more than any other that I can think of. So that, that, that's the one, I would say. This is an amazing and, and, and deep series of recommendations. I appreciate you coming through for this, Ari. Yeah, thank you. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm so grateful for the Criterion channel right, <laughs> uh, right now. It's a, uh, it's a lifesaver. Me too. Uh, hopefully we'll get a chance to see you in person soon. I hope so too. Thanks for having me on, Sean. I need sports to have to clear the room. Stand up and walk now. We got big baby Jesus, Chris Ryan here. Chris, what's up, man? Hey man, how's it going? I'm okay. Have you been watching the Criterion channel lately? Yeah, you know what's really good? The Criterion channel. It's amazing. Uh, yeah, I've been doing that a lot. I, I feel like I've, the, the thing with this really funny with Criterion channel is um, it makes me feel like a real scumbag if I like skip around or like eject in the middle of a movie because it, they're so lovingly curated and it just feels so good to fire up Criterion channel movie that if you ever like uh, just decide you're not really up for the marriage of Maria Braun, you know, <laughs> maybe 40 minutes in and you just kind of want to watch like what we do in the shadows. You, uh, you feel really, really bad about it. So it, it's, it's good. It's got some self-flagellation, but it's also got, it's one of the most edifying, rewarding streaming services that's ever been invented. So what's your pick? Tell me about um, what do you think people should be watching right now? I can only be myself. I wanted to come up with something really obscure or really, you know, offbeat, but I'm going to recommend Jean-Pierre Melville's 1967 Le Samurai starring Alain Delon. Uh, If you are a fan of any um, kind of nameless Ronin guys like rolling through cities, doing jobs, working in the underworld, this is the sort of Rosetta Stone for that. It is one of the coolest movies you will ever see. It is like a like a knowingly cool movie that basically invents a kind of uh, minimalist modern hitman film for decades to come. You can see it in Drive. You can see it in Driver. You can see it in Ronin. But it is an absolutely magical movie. It's a great pick. It was on the top of my mind in 2019 because apparently this is one of the movies that Brad Pitt studied when he was preparing for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And if you look at Alain Delon and and a lot of his work, Pitt is, he's lifting a lot of the moves, you know, the quiet stillness and the sort of effortless, handsome quality and that kind of like stealth charisma that Pitt has gotten so good at projecting. It's like, it's right there in that movie. It's a great pick. I feel like you're a big Melville guy. 
Yeah, so a few more of his films had been on the Criterion Channel, Army of Shadows, which is a masterpiece, and my favorite one of his straight crime movies, which is The Red Circle or Circle of Rouge. But the ones that remain are still worth watching. And the coolest thing about it is that I think Melville is probably a little bit a tier below the Truffauts and Godards of, of, of his generation of French filmmakers, but in a lot of ways is a great gateway to get into uh, other European filmmakers because so much of what he does is borrowing from 1940s and 1950s American crime films and then shooting it through the lens of that kind of ennui, European kind of existential left bank bullshitting stuff that I also get off on. Amazing pick. I knew I could count on you, Chris. There's no shame in shouting out La Samurai. Appreciate you, dude. Thanks, man. Okay, now let's talk to the big homie Barry Jenkins, who, of course, you know from movies like Moonlight, Oscar winner, one of the great filmmakers alive. We're also going to talk to Aaron Lee Carr, one of the most successful documentarians around right now. You can check out How to Fix a Drug Scandal on Netflix if you're interested in seeing her work. She's also made several films great true crime films for HBO in recent years. And then after that, we'll talk to Josh's brother, Benny Safdie, who's got a bit of a double dip recommendation for us. You ready for this? I've never been more ready for anything in my whole life. You know I love you. Barry Jenkins, what, what movie do you think people should be out there watching on Criterion Channel right now? Um, I mean, there's so many choices, man. I saw Yorgos' first film was on there, which I've never seen. And so I want to watch that. Um, there's this whole Quincy Jones, um, sort of like the sound of Quincy Jones. And you can kind of watch them in chronological order. So I've been kind of working my way uh, through those. Uh, the biggest thing for me uh, as a kid who grew up kind of like watching films in the late 90s into the early 2000s, um, is the, the commentaries, you know, uh, the special features, which we kind of take for granted now. Uh, with the everything streaming, you know, you buy something on iTunes and you just load it right up. You know, you don't go to the menu, you know, and sort of check out the special features. So, um, and it's interesting because, you know, Lulu and I are here, but, you know, it's just like when we have each other, so who the hell do you talk to about each other? <laughs> um, and cinema is such a communal experience. So it's been cool for me to be digging through the interviews with all the filmmakers um, on, the, on the website, on the Criterion Channel, uh, .com. And because I watched Cache the other day, because I was like, oh, I feel like I want to watch Cache. And even though Cache is not on the website, there are all these interviews uh, with Hanaki uh, on the website. And so I went and watched a few of those. Um, but for the purposes of this, uh, I chose Picnic at Hanging Rock um, by Peter Ware, um, which is um, a, a cool film. I actually had never heard of this movie until a um, little bit of trivia. I got staffed by Damon Lindelof on season two of The Leftovers. And when I first came into the writer's room, didn't get to write any episodes, didn't do much. So it wouldn't be a shock <laughs> if nobody had any idea that I had anything to do with The Leftovers. I mean, at the end of the day, I had nothing to do with The Leftovers. But when I first came into the writer's room, there was a starter pack you got, which was you had to have watched all of the first season, had to have read Tom Parada's novel. Uh, and then there was this Bible they had cooked up. It was like, oh, and you have to watch Picnic a Hanging Rock. Um, and so I watched this film that I'd never heard of. And Damon was just obsessed with it, you know, not as like a, a reference point because Parada's book, you know, was the basis of the show. But there's just something about the atmospherics of it, um, the, the tension of it, you know, all these ideas of uh, colonialism, sexual hysteria, all these things bound up 
in what's kind of like, you know, the supernatural uh, mystery, but made of very grounded elements. And so he had us watch that film over and over again. And then I came out of the writer's room and went and made Moonlight and never uh, didn't really think of it again. And uh, now that we're here with all this time, I was going to the website and noticed that it was uh, it was on there. I have a lot of criterions that I have here in hard copy, but I don't have that one. And so, yeah, I plugged that one up. Um, you know, it's one of those overlooked uh, gems from the late '70s that I think, you know, stylistically, story-wise, is still very relevant to uh, you know a modern audience. So that would be my pick. Do you have any relationship to Weir's other movies? Is he a person that you've looked at in the past, or is is he is that the one film that sticks out for you? No, it's not the one film that sticks out for me. I mean, there there are a few others, you know. I mean, obviously, the really big, like massive ass films uh, that everyone's seen, which you wouldn't think the same guy made Picnic uh, at Hanging Rock. Um, you know, it, it's kind of like um, I don't know the the can selection uh, of his uh, of his sort of I I M D biography. Um, but no, I, I can't say that I've uh, ever really been uh, a big fan. And I got to say, you know, shout out to Damon because it was a filmmaker. And I think one of the things about the Criterion Channel that's really cool is there are just so many filmmakers that as time moves on, you know, they're not as present um, in our lives, not as present on our screens. And this is an opportunity um, to sort of uh, reacquaint ourselves with those filmmakers. And yeah, Peter Ware is a G, you know, and this movie is awesome. <laughs> I'm educating myself a lot right now and trying to see as many things as I can that I've never seen. Hadn't never seen any Shohei Imamura films. I'm kind of going through those at the moment. Is there anybody else, like one filmmaker that you want to say, well, a lot of their work is on the service right now. Maybe you should peep this. Uh, there's a few. I mean, I think uh, Agnes Varda has quite a few pieces up on the website that people should check out. I think there's some of the lesser known Haneke that's on the website that people should check out. You know, when this all first started, I watched Time on the Wolf. Uh, which is also, you know, one of the lesser known or lesser seen Haneke films. And then I was like, well, I got to watch more. And I just loaded up the app, you know, and started working my way uh, back through them. Um, I think for me, though, what I try to do is I try to use the the website and I have it I have it up on my iPad here. I actually like to look, look at it on my iPad. I don't know if you can see it on my iPad. Yeah, yeah. Um, it kind of reminds me of like the old school being in a video store where I sometimes just get on there. And, you know, I just hit the explore button. You know, I, I always go to the leaving. And right now it's leaving April 30th. I go through there and go, okay, what what am I missing that I need to hit? And there's always, you know, as much of a cinephile as I could think of myself, you know, I'm nowhere near. There's so much shit that I need to see. And literally, like on the page I'm looking at right now, if there's 16 films on here, I maybe have seen four, you know, that are just on the screen right now. And so I remember when I first got into film, I would go to Blockbuster. I told the story during the, the Moonlight Press Tour. I would just grab a random box. Didn't care what it was. If I hadn't seen it, I was like, okay, I'm going to go home and give two hours to watch this. And I think you can do the same thing with the Criterion channel uh, right now. Just, I don't know, touch a button and, you know, go ahead and watch it. Get transported. Barry, thank you for doing this. I appreciate it, man. These are, this is a great pick. My pleasure, man. Hopefully someday we can do it again in person, man. Take care of yourself. See you soon. You too, buddy. Thank you. These allegations do not implicate any system-wide practices. How do you come out and make a statement that no one's been wrongfully convicted? How do you know? You just assume they're doing their job unless you're told otherwise. What are you doing? Medium, I would say, is the best that one can say. Medium to low. I'm like headquartered and hiding in a remote place in Connecticut. Medium, I feel like, is good. I feel like that... Anybody who says they're great, 
Shut it down. No way. Yeah, can't trust Psychopath. that. Psychopath. <laughs> yeah, I agree with you. Um, you prepared to uh, make a recommendation? Yep. So how okay. many recommendations do I get? Just one, man. One? Oh, I had four. All right. Oh my God. Aaron, come on. I know. I know. Well, I'll just do it when you, are we recording already? We can start whenever you want. Um, so I was sequestered before all this happened. I went to Florida to basically like take a month off. And uh, one of my friends was like, you have to check out Criterion. And like, I'm making a film right now. And so it was like, you know, putting all of these uh, other filmmakers thoughts. And you would think that somebody like me would come up with like the, the, the lesser known director. But I found myself, I kept uh, true to my form. I like, I watched some Alfred Hitchcock and I watched The Lady Vanishes. And that's, um, you know, I think that people really always talk about psycho, about vertigo. Um, but I am somebody that really tries to think about sort of female hysteria and what does it mean? And so I, um, you know, I just like it, it, the, the sort of the plot is about there's somebody that uh, that goes missing on a train. Is she dead? Is she gone? It's a whodunit. But at the root of it is this rich uh, white woman uh, who is uh, who's trying to figure out what happened to this lady that was sitting next to her. And you may be like, listen, we don't need to listen to any more rich white ladies and what they're thinking <laughs> about things. Um, but, you know, all of the men around her are like, yeah, you're imagining things. It is. Uh, it doesn't exist. So it's like this weird gaslighting, and it's one of the the first forms of gaslighting that I've seen in that you know, and really seen it as gaslighting. Um, and it's also just like playful and funny and evergreen. And I just kind of like you know, I think my true thing is: am I not going to pay attention to my phone when I'm uh, when I am looking at this? And I really wasn't. And I, I had saved this like stone crab, and I was just sitting there and like a, like a like a tabletop in Florida, just like eating like crab and like watching this, uh, this Hitchcock film. And it was just, I don't know, really fun. Where does it sit for you in the, the Hitchcock pantheon? Like, do you love those classics or are you kind of like looking for to understand him in a different way than just the traditional psycho North by Northwest stuff? I mean, so all, so I make psychological thrillers that are also documentary. And so anybody that is a master of that sort of, um, of that, those sequences of those films of, uh, complicated women. I think Hitchcock had really, um, three, uh, really dimensional relationships with the women on screen. And so he's always been somebody that I have, um, that I just decode that I try to understand. And like, obviously like, um, you know, Vertigo and North by Northwest, um, are going to be particularly like, they're just so beautiful. Um, but I do really enjoy sort of, you, you can see his personality in these other films of like what he's sort of trying to say, but also maybe that's just me thinking, I know what Alfred Hitchcock has to say. And I've always just loved his relationship with his wife, how um, he always would like try to share the praise. And I think so often with male directors, it's like, keep the lady to the left. Like, yeah, she might be like, you know, doing everything and helping me out, but like, I am the, the great grand director. Um, and so I just, I always sort of liked that, but you know, there, there's complicating factors with all these directors. How do you actually take inspiration from Hitchcock and put it into a documentary? How does that like, help me understand how that works? Yeah. I mean, so there's a lot of, um, sort of, uh, especially in true crime, here's a question and here's an answer. And, uh, it, it follows a very linear format. Like me as somebody who's watched so much of it, sometimes I can just 
know exactly how this is going to unfold. And so when I watch these narrative films, it's really about how do you pose questions at the top and you foreshadow events that are going to show up later. And so it's like, you know, in terms of mental instability or in terms of sort of this is an unreliable narrator or, um, you know, things like that, that you can flag at the top of films in the middle of films that ultimately have this sort of payoff. Um, and yeah, I think that that's the way I do it. And I think documentary films are really moving towards narrative films and the way they looked and the way that they're sold and the way that sort of, um, you know, that they're directed. And so I've always been a little bit of a purist being like, no, I don't want to do recreates. I don't want to do that. Um, but I think that audiences demand a certain level of sophistication and we're going to be getting into a moment where I think documentary films are going to start to look a lot like narrative films. I thought How to Fix a Drug Scandal was very cinematic, very Hitchcockian. Aaron, thanks for chipping in on this. Thank you. Next. You're incredible, do you understand? Yeah. Oh, I'm serious. You think I could have done that without you standing next to me being strong? You going quarantine, Beard? I am. Nice. <laughs> it's literally just physical passage of time. <laughs> I don't think the only other time I've done this was um, good time. And this is like three times that level. The beard? In the very beginning. In the very beginning, I have it because then I shave it. At the, that's the whole point is he cleans, he cleans me up. Right, right, right. Okay, okay. Well, it looks good. So, um, so yeah, let's, let's do this thing. Did your brother okay. tell you what he picked? No, he didn't tell me what he picked, but it's, 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 uh, what did he pick? He picked, uh, Atlantic City. I have not seen that. It's good. We talked a lot about yeah. Susan Sarandon's use of lemons in the movie, which you'll okay. understand when you see it. It's important stuff. There's, I, there's two. I, they're very similar, but the, the harder they fall and on the waterfront. Oh, wow. You doubled up yeah. on me. So do tell me about the harder they fall for people who are not. It's unbelievable. It. It's incredible. But it's Bud Schulberg, you know, he wrote it. And then it's about, I guess it was, la- it was um, Bogart's last movie, oh. which, is, which is insane. Um, it's Bogart's last movie. And then he, I guess he plays a sports writer, an over-the-hill sports writer who gets hired by the mob, essentially. And the, the leader of that is Rod Steiger. He, he basically hires him to build up this guy from Argentina, Toro, who is this seven-foot monster, essentially strongman, to be a boxer in the United States. And it builds him up all the way to the heavyweight fight in the Madison Square Garden. It's incredible. So you basically wow. see him fighting all these people. It's just an incredible movie. You see him going town to town, fighting all the people in those towns. And there's a bus that has like Toro on it. It's incredible. What made you want to check this movie out? I was reading Ringside by Bud Schulberg. And he mentions this movie. And then he talks about, of course, On the Waterfront, which I had never seen until recently. But, oh no kidding so I, so I was I wanted to see I was like okay let me check out the Harley Falls it's got everything I want you know plus it's Bogart and it was just like I remember watching like wow this is and I had never really heard of the director before Mark Robeson yeah and I don't I, know his work but it was just like doing some incredible stuff in there like these insane dolly shots and also the actors that are in it are amazing you think real le- legit real boxers playing themselves in the movie which is amazing you know it's like you've got this one guy who's so punch drunk, but you're like, this guy's got to be, you, you know, there's no question he was a boxer. You know, the, his face, 
the way he talks about it, it's all so built into the narrative. It's incredible. And then there was, there was another guy who, um, well, Toro is, on his own is incredible because he's just literally this like seven foot Argentinian strong man, you know? And, um, it's, it, it was, and there's his trainer, this like this trainer guy is incredible. I, I don't know, like the casting of it was perfect. And it was just so well written and well paced, and it was just awesome. What came first? Did you watch The Harder They Fall before On the Waterfront? I did, yes. So, and wh- why? How is On the Waterfront like a, an open space for you? I feel like that should be in your. In your I know that's reel. the thing. There's certain there's certain movies that like you have in front of you that you never touch because you just don't know if you're ever ready for it, and then you always push it off. For me, the, for the longest time, it was The Godfather. You know, all throughout college, I'm like, oh, I can't. Everybody talks about The Godfather. I've never seen The Godfather, and then I finally see, it, like, oh yeah, everybody talks about it for a reason. You know, <laughs> sure. but this. So finally, like, but that's like an example. Like you, you don't ever revisit those certain things that kind of feel like um, mammoth kind of movies. And so this was one of them. And I was like, how good can it be? I wasn't. I just wasn't ever ready for it. And then I watched it. And I was just, this is. Just next, it's next level on so many different terms, and it's also Rod Seiger's in that too. And he mm-hmm. might have this, he has the standout moment, I think, in the whole movie when it's him. It's funny, I'm, I don't want to like, I'm like, oh, I don't want to ruin it for anybody. Yeah, don't <laughs> spoil this 70 year old movie. <laughs> I know, but that's how I feel. Josh and I were talking about the, the other day that you can spoil movies that don't. Was it, was it, yeah, either way. Um, so there's, there's a moment where he has to talk to his brother, which is uh, Marlon Brando. And it's when Brando's giving his speech that could have been a contender, all that stuff. But it's Steiger, who is so lost and so confused that he doesn't even say any words. He just kind of talks to, like these sounds come out of his mouth when he's sitting in the back of the car. And I was just like, that's like acting on a whole other level. Like and you, everybody points to Brando, but nobody ever looks at him in that scene. And it's just a perfect, perfect kind of pairing. Steiger's incredible. I don't, it's like, and then he, the pawnbroker is, is, a, is a perfect example of him just being a great actor. But these, in um, The Heart of They Fall, he's amazing too. But, and and pawnbroker is also on Criterion Channel. So you, it is, you I know, have a like, Steiger triple feature, you can do it. Yes, which you can. And I, the, the thing is, is he, ha- I don't know what it, I can't pinpoint exactly what it is, but there's a certain instability to his characters, like a kind of, not craziness, it's just, He's off something. He's not, he's not comfortable where he is. And especially in heart of the fall, you think he's on top of his game, but the moment the matches that he has fixed start falling apart, you're just like, he, he loses it. You know, and he's like, picks up the phone. He's calling Bogart. He's like, you don't understand. I got to do this. You don't work for me. I like it. This is easy. He goes wild. And he, and he, it's weird because he's strong, but you feel in both of them, he plays a similar character. He's a strong character who you don't necessarily know is going to go all the way or be able to do it. But are you saying yeah. he's like a Howard Ratner esque figure? Kind of. I guess you could say that. Yeah. You you're attracted to that. a certain type, I think. Benny. <laughs> Let me just ask you quickly do you think you're the first person in history to go in this order from ringside to the harder they fall to on the waterfront? I don't think anyone's ever done it that <laughs> I, way. I, I, don't, I don't think so. Yeah. It's like, well, the thing is, is you mentioned uh, Howard Ratner. You have What Makes Sammy Run, which is the other Schulberg, which is amazing. But like, ringside, I've, just, I've had sitting there for so long. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to pick it up and go through it. And it's amazing. But I, just hearing the way he talks about the movies, he's just like, at one point he talks about how Brando's giving everybody trouble because he's shit talking the Academy. But meanwhile, Schulberg doesn't even want to do any press because he has a boxer 
that he's working with. It's amazing. You know, it's just, uh, so then to watch those movies with a little bit of backstory is pretty cool. But that that's yeah, perfect. They, you you gave us three for the price of one. I appreciate it, man. <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much. Of course. Um. <clears throat> okay, Amanda, how are you today? I'm good. I think yeah, I did did jam session, did some other work. Here I am. Did you speak to Knox? Um, he sent me an email. I did. Okay. I I spoke to him for um five minutes. You can't really get him on the phone because he only checks his phone once a day at eleven forty five p.m. Eastern. So he's living. So, but I did speak to him last night and he picked a movie and he explained it why it's a very cute little email. Okay. I started recording. Oh, okay. Great. Um, do you want me to record this on my thing? Yes, please. Okay. Just making sure. Uh, we're joined by my big picture co-host, Amanda Dobbins. Amanda, what's up? Hello, Sean. Uh, so I asked you for a Criterion channel recommendation and your first thought was to go to your father. Why yes. was that? I outsourced it. Um, so. My dad is probably the uh, number one movie fan besides you, Sean, and also definitely the number one Criterion fan in my life. I don't know anybody who is more jazzed about the Criterion collection than my dad. Uh, my husband and I gave him a subscription for Christmas last year because he's really into movies in general. He sees a lot of movies and he'll find kind of weird stuff on streaming services, but he didn't have Criterion. And Every time I talk to him now, we only talk about how much he loves the Criterion channel and how glad he is that Zach, my husband, got him a subscription. I have been cut out of the equation, <laughs> even though it was a joint gift, but he loves my husband and he loves the gift. So uh, it's worth it, I guess. But yeah, I he only wants to talk about these movies. And so I thought that I would share his enthusiasm. And I spoke to him briefly last night and I gave him a homework assignment, which was to pick a movie and to write a brief explanation of why he picked it and why he liked it. And so he picked, this was exciting actually, on the phone he told me that he was going to do a Sweet Smell of Success, but he changed his pick and he went with uh, M by Fritz, Fritz Lang. Before you describe why he pitched M, have you seen M? I haven't. Okay, M's wonderful movie. Uh, it's very, very depraved. And so... um the fact that your father recommended this is fascinating to me and mm -hmm. maybe a little bit revealing, but let's let's hear his let's hear his affirmation of M. It's fascinating to me, too. And I just want to say that if my father had been able to get his homework assignment in on time, I would have watched it before we did this. <laughs> but he didn't because he doesn't check his phone that often. But I'll read part of his explanation. But what stood out to me in his explanation was how much how similar he and I are in terms of what we think is scary and what we respond to is film, which is very cute and exciting. But anyway, okay. He he notes that he read some other reviews and wanted to try to use them, but uh, then he decided to use his own language. Okay, here we go. M is about a serial child killer in Berlin in the 1930s. It is scary, and it's still unnerves as I write this. There are no gruesome scenes or depictions of the killings. guess this is a spoiler. My dad also likes to spoil movies. Sorry. Uh, we know immediately who the killer is, so no suspense there. And though the bug-eyed Laurie is memorable, he is gentlemanly, even gentle, except when he gives in to his urges, which we never see. 
I am not sure I can explain why the movie is so frightening. It is not because of its immediacy. We are not horrified because we fear we might encounter this sort of horror the way we are afraid of depictions of terrorist bombings or house break-ins. Maybe the film is terrifying because the period and place and people M depicts are terrifying outside of the serial killer storyline. We, unlike the audience in 1931, know what is to come. It will not surprise you that I appreciated the movie because this early talkie is not (laughs) over-dialogued, which I really enjoy. (laughs) This keep goes on. Um, I wish I had more understanding of cinematography and scene direction and design so that I could analyze why the visual effects of this black and white are so striking. I can't, but they are. And then he says he would love to talk to me and my husband after we watched it. Wow. That's, uh, he really (laughs) took the homework assignment to heart. Should we publish that on the ringer? Again, like father, like daughter. Okay. (laughs) No, I, I, it's a great pick. There are a bunch of other Fritz Lang movies, um, on the service right now. I think the big heat is on there. Obviously his landmark metropolis, man, Knox, you you can't let him get too close to this show. He might overwhelm both of us. No, I know. But the thing that I just wanted to point out about this, it's not a movie I've seen, obviously. So I really shouldn't be talking because I don't know anything, but I was thinking about our most recent conversation about aliens and just the, the fear of what you can't see versus the fear of what's there right in front of you. And uh, apparently that is a, a genetic disposition in my case. Incredible stuff. Yeah. Amanda, thank you for communicating with your father. Thanks for sharing the insights. Do you have anything that you want to pitch? Any criterion love that you have? I don't know if you've been on the service lately. Not off the top of my head. I really just, I, I focused on Knox. I want to stand by Knox Dobbins in his, in his shining moment and his favorite service. Filial piety is a beautiful thing. Thanks, Amanda. Once again, thank you to Amanda Dobbins and especially Knox Dobbins for those picks. Let's go to our final batch of recommendations. First, Alex Ross Perry, also a two-time guest of the show, making his triumphant return to make an unusual and unexpected recommendation. And then we'll go to our old pal, Adam Naiman, to close things out before Penelope Bartlett comes through. Hi, it's Alex. How are you? Good. How's it going? Not bad. Can you see us and everything? I can see you. Yes. Hello. Um, my first Zoom. Very exciting here. You you really crushed it. 1030 on the dot. You nailed it. We were a little nervous. Yeah. For a well, it's 130 for me. So I've had a whole morning so far. You want to do this thing? Yeah. I, I got nervous thinking like, what if I've picked the same thing that someone else has picked if I'm number eight? But uh, it's been a lot of like the classics. Sure. Criterion stuff. Great. Well, that's not what I picked. So. Perfect. I had a feeling you would go left. Alex Ross Perry, what'd you, uh, what'd you pick from the Criterion channel? Um, I picked The Ascent, which is a Russian film. Haven't seen it. The Ascent, a 1979 Russian film directed by Larissa Shapitko, um, was my, is the movie that I thought I would recommend. I don't know if you know this movie. I've um, never seen it. I've never even heard of it. But didn't now correct me if I'm wrong. And part of the reason I thought this would be a good selection. Didn't you stump for come and see recently? I didn't, but I'm, I'm interested in it. I mean, I've seen it and I know that they were planning this big re-release. It was right around this time. I think it was supposed to come to LA. Unfortunately, now I'm not going to get a chance to see it in theaters. I thought some people had, I thought I'd been seeing some notion of people watching it recently. 
Yeah, people are watching it because it opened, I think it played in New York, and then it was going to play in LA, and then it was supposed to go to Criterion after that. So this movie is directed by the wife of the filmmaker of Come and See. Oh, okay. But if you like World War II movies, which you know a lot of people do, and you like the sort of intensity and philosophical hopelessness of Russian filmmaking, which for most people is just, you know, Tarkovsky and Eisenstein, then discovering these Russian World War II movies is very exciting because their relationship with World War II is not America's relationship with World War II, even though we were technically on the same side. So when you watch, like, come and see people's references to a World War II movie, you're like, oh, I'm not used to seeing the visual language of a war movie, but devoid of any pursuit of victory. So what is the ascent? What is it about specifically? Is it, a, is it about a, a squad? Is it about a battle? Like, what, what actually takes place in the movie? So similar to come and see, uh, it's really just mostly about survival and deals with the sort there's like a sequence in come and see with the Belarusian army that has sort of turned on their countrymen and are now helping exterminate Russians in the name of German victory. And this movie kind of deals with that as well, but similar to most of come and see it's mostly just about the overwhelmingly improbable odds of survival in these tundras during a time of, of ravage and hopelessness. And, you know, it's not that I, the way you're describing, describing it, you think oh, it must be three hours long. It's under two hours. It's not like a, an impossible epic. It's a pretty straightforward movie, but it is just basically two characters moving through the tundra, trying to survive and then ultimately being imprisoned and then ultimately dealing with the, opportunities to sort of turn and it's just you know it's not much more to it than that it's not a very plot heavy movie there's no like maps or charts or taking the hill or taking the battlefield it's really just about the bleakest sense of survival which recently watching a handful of not just russian but european world war ii movies all on criterion channel um we were looking at you know, Army of Shadows, as I just mentioned, Ballad of a Soldier, this, uh, the Tin Drum, kind of looking at the scope of World War II from the French perspective, the German perspective, the Russian perspective, but represented decades later through film was really kind of a fun winter activity that Criterion Channel basically made possible to curate like a 10 movie series of just this, where you never see decisive victories you never see churchill or the battle of the bulge or anything that you're used to seeing you just see desolate landscapes suffering and survival and that's kind of the russian relationship with world war ii and the ascent in the way that i feel like come and see has been restored and people are kind of now saying how did i not know about this movie this is one of the films i feel like if I can put the ascent into that category and say, well, if you like come and see and you're interested in more thoroughly, aggressively challenging Russian World War II survival stories, this is one of them. And they weirdly came from the same household, um, you know, less than a decade apart, which I find very strange. It's sort of like the, the Varda Demi of depressing Russian, <laughs> you know, fatalism. 
I knew I could count on you for it for an uplifting pick, Alex. I had a strong feeling. I mean, you're... yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Well, I mean, it's not that I'm saying, oh, you know, if you're stuck inside and you're looking for some positivity right now, this is the movie. But it is um, kind of just a towering film that, similar to Come and See, has sort of slipped in and out of availability. I'm sure. I'm sure there was a DVD of this at some point, and I'm sure that I at some point missed a handful of opportunities to see a print of it somewhere in some Russian cinema series. But this is the kind of thing that when I see it streaming, I'm like, even streaming is young, but still in my mind, streaming does not exist to service films like this. Like, it's just so crazy to me that this is a click away. I guess, do you use the channel at this point? And because you've seen everything you you spent years at kim's you had access to things that people didn't have access to like do you use it to discover stuff or do you use it as comfort food at this point well both i mean this is a great example another world war ii movie that i forgot to mention that's on there is capo the gilo pontecorvo movie which is like you know everyone knows battle of algiers that movie is like canonical foreign film and then the rest of his body of work has largely been unavailable. You know, he has this sort of weird Marlon Brando movie called Burn that pops up sometimes with Ennio Morricone score, I believe. But then Capo is this very, very early concentration camp movie. If not the first, then one of the earliest films to fictionally depict film scenes in a concentration camp. And I'd always wanted to see it, and it was never really available Again, I'm sure there were bootlegs or torrents of it somewhere, but it was just always eluded me. And then this winter, I noticed it was just on there. And when I'm, when I'm looking for something, it's a combination of like, I've always wanted to see this and this seems like a great way to watch it. And like, you know, the other day, I think, you know, they sent out that email. There was like five picks from Wes Anderson and he recommended the out-of-towners. And I was like, oh, I've actually never seen that. Let's a comedy would be great. And then I, you know, was just sort of directed straight from that email to watching the movie a few days later. But then other times it's just you dig deep and I see something like The Ascent or Capo that I've always kind of wanted to track down. And it's the sort of thing that even if Criterion did put it out, would I pay $30 for a movie I've never seen but is probably going to be great? And then the fact that they're just making these, you know, not obscure because these are famous movies. Like I think this, The Ascent won top prize at Berlin. So it's not like this is an unknown movie. But again, like the brain patterns of what streaming offers you don't necessarily think this is a great way to finally fill in some blind spots of 70s and 80s Soviet cinema. And yet that's what the Criterion Channel has been offering. And I, I pretty consistently find myself really floored by what is on there me too which is why i wanted to do this it's an it's an amazing pick for a film that i haven't heard of and now i have to go watch um thanks again alex for doing this i really appreciate you taking the time man yeah good luck with the rest i uh, look forward to listening to it you are now calling outside the domestic united states international rates may apply Uh, we're joined. We're joined by our old friend Adam Naiman, Ringer contributor, one of the great film critics. Adam, how you doing, man? 
I'm doing okay. Greetings from Toronto. Uh, from Toronto, what are you going to recommend for the universe from the Criterion channel? I think they just added it or added it recently is Orson Welles' third film, The Stranger, which was made right after World War II. And you can see the post-war themes because he plays a high-ranking Nazi who flees to, a, flees to a small Connecticut town where he's hiding. He's very conspicuous, not so much because he's a Nazi, but because he's Orson Welles. <laughs> and <laughs> this was Welles, like right between like Citizen Kane and Magnificent Ambersons being these masterpieces that no one liked at the time or few people liked, and him trying to just stay in the industry after doing a lot of radio stuff during World War II and things falling through. So he gives himself this great part as this like brilliant, nasty, dog murdering. Nazi and Edward G. Robinson chases him to this small town and is trying to, you know, figure out if this teacher with this weird, mysterious past who keeps making speeches about the Nazis is like actually secretly a Nazi. And um, it's just this great, propulsive noir. And if you read about it, it was meddled with a lot. Like they cut lots of stuff out of it. Wells was trying to prove he could bring a film in under budget. And so one of the things he did was he shot everything in long takes so the producers would have nothing to cut. It's like, you can't get rid of any of this because it's there. And uh, it's not as big a flex as Citizen Kane or Amberson's, but it's just really good. And it has this weird history where it ended up in the public domain for a while. Like, I think either no one owned it or wanted to own it, but now Criterion's got it. And it's obviously a really nice print and looks great. And I'm just finding at the moment, and it's not to, to drag this into pandemic talk, but just like uh, Orson Welles' showmanship, his commitment to being entertaining making sure that you are entertained and leading in this movie with his own awesome acting is just uh, a real comfort it's an amazing pick uh, i've seen this film i love this film um what can you give a couple of other wells tips for people if they want to do like a wells deep dive because i think most people know they obviously know citizen kane and amberson's was was reissued in its truncated form by criterion a couple of years ago i think but what else is out there that people should look into if they want to have a Wells deep dive? I mean, leaving aside that any Orson Wells deep dive begins with YouTube and all the commercials that he did for money <laughs> towards the end of his career in life, which, and I'm not even saying this in a mocking way, like the don't give a fuck level of these commercials is just off the charts, <laughs> you know? They're yes. awesome. But uh, no, I mean, there's a bunch of stuff for Wells that people are interested in. You can look at all different phases in his career i mean you can go on youtube and listen to the war of the world broadcast from 1938 which is like the great one of the great like multimedia hoaxes uh, or just an amazing piece of radio stagecraft a couple years ago netflix put out that completed version of his lost film other side of the wind which interestingly casts john houston as a thinly veiled version of orson wells and houston was actually supposed to direct the stranger so there's a certain kinship between the two of them. But the one that's on, I think it's on Criterion Channel now too, and which just rules the earth is Ethics for Fake, which is where Wells is just basically narrating and describing a series of hoaxes and sleight of hand tricks, including his own movie, again, uh, showmanship. And just a little adjacent to that on YouTube, the single best thing I've watched during the pandemic, not that you asked, but I will give it to you, is Ricky Jay and his 52 assistants which is the YouTube video of Ricky Jay's stage performance. That's one of the only times in the last three weeks I've been purely uninterruptedly happy for 55 straight minutes is watching Ricky Jay's insane arcane patter while like throwing cards as darts and tricking people. It's the best. Criterion should have it. 
but until I they agree. Do, it's cinematic. It is cinematic. I think House of Games is on Criterion now, too, if people want a Ricky J fix. So I saw Ricky J and his 52 assistants on HBO when it originally aired, and that actually was my gateway drug to House of Games and then seeing Ricky as his career as an actor and working with Mamet and Spanish Prisoner and all those other films. You're right, though. That should be on Criterion. It is, it is worthy of, of that, that home. Yeah, I mean, it should be in the Louvre, basically. It's, it's the, <laughs> the greatest thing I've ever seen. And the, that New York, if anyone is still listening at this point, the New Yorker profile that they wrote of Ricky Jay in 1993 is one of the greatest profiles I've ever read, too. You come away from it thinking that the guy is either legitimately supernatural or just a really, really good uh, study. You know, he's the best. I agree. You're a good study, too, Adam. I appreciate you taking a little time out, man. My pleasure. Everybody uh, listening, please stay safe. You too, man. We'll talk to you soon. I'm delighted to be joined by Penelope Bartlett, the programmer at the Criterion Channel. Penelope, thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me. I was hoping to start, you could take us back to October of 2018 when Filmstruck closed. I, that was a sad day, I think, for a lot of people who spend a lot of time watching movies at home, streaming, you know, serious, great, historical, art house, indie cinema. Just what was happening at that time? What was that like for you guys? And what was the, what did you think the future was going to hold? Uh, yeah, that was really a devastating time for us. Um, I remember having to share the news and saying that I felt kind of like I'd, I'd been broken up with. Um, <laughs> it was really, really sad. <laughs> we loved working with TCM, um, and it was a fantastic platform. Um, and at that point, we weren't really sure what the future was going to hold, and we were really just sort of going back to the drawing board and figuring that out. But I think one thing that we knew was that we absolutely wanted to get our library back into the streaming space for people to to enjoy and have access to as soon as we possibly could. So what happens there? Does in for your role in particular, are you, do you have to start building a plan of any kind? Um, that was more um our leadership that was involved in making that sort of big picture decision. So our president and our CEO, um, and they worked really closely together to come up with a solution, which eventually took the shape of the Criterion Channel. But there were a lot of conversations about who we would work with, how we would how we would make this happen. So there was kind of a period where it was really just sort of meetings and and just talking about it and figuring out exactly what our plan was moving forward. Was the mission any different from what you guys had set out to do at Filmstruck? I mean, I think we said in our launch statement for the Criterion Channel that we wanted to carry on where Filmstruck left off. Um, so it was very much, we very much thought of it as a continuation of Filmstruck. Um, we really wanted to make it very clear from the outset that while the Janus Criterion catalog is available in its entirety on the platform, that there are also classic Hollywood films, films from major Hollywood studios, films from other indie distributors, contemporary films that aren't in the Criterion collection. Um, so we really wanted to make it as broad and deep a selection of, of films as Filmstruck had been because we love Filmstruck as much as, as all the subscribers did. And we really wanted to be able to bring something as close to that experience back to our viewers. How did you specifically get involved in doing this kind of work? How, what does it mean to be a programmer for a streaming service? I feel like explaining what a program... It's, it's such a... 
a specific job that people in film all know exactly what it is. And then anyone I talk to outside of film about my job thinks that I'm like a computer programmer, which could not be <laughs> further from the truth. And I would be so terrible at that job. But um, I, my background is uh, I programmed for some different film festivals, um, originally in the UK and then moved to the US and programmed um, short films for a long time at the Chicago International Film Festival, uh, films for the Palm Springs International Film Festival. Um, so that was really my background was um, reviewing submissions often and programming um, contemporary films, so new films um, for um, for film festivals. Uh, so I hadn't really worked in the digital space before. Um, and I'd always been a huge fan of classic cinema, but I hadn't really worked so much in that arena for a long time. Um, so this, this position was really kind of exciting to me because it was sort of opening up something new and also a return to kind of actually you know, exploring the classics of world cinema. Um, so kind of combining something quite new, a digital streaming platform, with sort of really getting back to watching the classics, um, which just seemed like a really kind of exciting juxtaposition. Um, so, yeah, that's that's kind of how it came along. I'm not sure if that really answers your question. No, it does. I mean, what exactly is it that you do then? So when you're when you're programming a film festival, obviously there is a lot of new films that you have to watch and figure out what fits with the tone of the festival you're doing, with the mission of the festival, most of that work is unseen by the public or even other filmmakers in the industry. In this case, you've got 120 years of cinema history to pick through. You know, you've you've got a, a certain amount of, I, I assume, some flexibility inside the service to make choices. You know, how do you guys decide what to share and when to share it? It's a great question. Um, I think. One of the things that we want to always remember is that we do have this amazing permanent library of films. So we want to make sure we're always finding different ways to surface those titles. So for example, today, April 1st, is Toshiro Mifune's, would have been his 100th birthday, his centenary. Uh, so we have a huge collection of films with all of his you know, most lauded performances. And most of those are Janice titles. So most of those are films that are in our library. And this is just a really exciting way to bring them together to celebrate an icon of cinema who everybody loves. Um, we were also able to bring in a few classic Hollywood titles because he did actually um, uh, appear in some Hollywood films later in his career. Um, so I think we always want to be finding exciting ways to, to surface uh, the Janice films. Um, but we also we know that we have a lot of people who love classic Hollywood cinema. So for example, film noir, film noir is always incredibly popular. So next week for our actual anniversary on April 8th, we'll be bringing back a collection that we had at the, at the outset of the service at the launch of the service, which is the Columbia noir collection. Um, so it's a huge collection of film noir, um, everything from more well-known films like, Fritz Lang's The Big Heat and uh, Nicholas Ray's In a Lonely Place um, to these sort of deeper cuts like this great film called Murder by Contract by Irving Lerner, um, which Martin Scorsese is a huge fan of, but a lot of people hadn't seen before. And that did really well when we played it the first time. And we're kind of excited to bring it back and hope that some of the people who loved it the first time will introduce it to new people because we have, you know, obviously a lot of new people who've signed up for the service since we launched a year ago. Um, 
so, so yeah, it's that sort of balance of, you know, something like the Mifune, which is more the sort of world cinema side with the classic Hollywood. We know that we have subscribers that sort of really gravitate towards those two areas. And then contemporary, bringing in really great contemporary films is another thing that's been really important to us on the streaming service. Um, we show, I would say, generally newer films on the service than we tend to release. There's obviously a few exceptions to that. Um, I really love programming our weekly focus on women filmmakers. Um, and that allows us to show everything from films by Dorothy Arzner and Ida Lupino, these amazing directors from the Hollywood era who are not nearly as well known as they should be, right up to uh, when we're able to kind of build a collection around a film that's out in theaters at the time. So when we launched, we had uh, Joanna Hogg's film, The Souvenir, was in theaters um, that May. And we played uh, her first three films, um, which are all just so wonderful and really not nearly as well known as they should be. I, I hope a little bit of the acclaim that the souvenir got meant that people went back and watched them and watched them on the channel. Um, and then we've done similar things with Celine Shiama. We had we have her first three films up on the service now um, and everybody's sort of talking about it and rightfully kind of gushing over Portrait of a Lady on Fire. So um, it's really nice to be able to give people an opportunity to kind of dive into her back catalogue of films. And Mati Diop as well, we have... Uh, all of her short films available to, sc to, to stream on the service. Um, and that those went up around the same time that um, her amazing first feature, Atlantic, uh, went up on Netflix. So um, it's nice to be able to sort of go from, you know, something really, like you said, you know, early silent films right up to, you know, more recent films by filmmakers who have brand new films in theaters. Let me drill down on a couple of things that you said there. Um, mm -hmm. You know, you mentioned that you've obviously got this the Janus Criterion collection to 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 dig into for Mufune, for example. But I, you know, I noticed that Red Sun is in the collection that you guys put up today, which is a you know pretty much lesser known Hollywood movie with Charles Bronson that Mufune appeared in. So, right. how do you guys make the decision? that you want to make Red Sun a part of the collection for a, a period of time? And then what kind of goes into that decision making? I know you're not necessarily licensing these films, but help us understand, like, why does Red Sun show up? Whereas another movie, maybe Hell in the Pacific doesn't show up. <laughs> I, I had a feeling you were going to ask about Hell in the Pacific. Um, <laughs> I like and, Hell in the Pacific. <laughs> yeah. So it's honestly, without getting too sort of nitty gritty, it really is. Um, and I, I am pretty involved in the licensing of these films. So um, okay. it truly, it boils down to availability. Um, the film might be licensed exclusively elsewhere. Um, you know, we very much would have liked to play that film. It's not like we we didn't like forget about it <laughs> um, <I'm sure>. <laughs> <laughs> um or it's a it's that we don't have a relationship with that studio yet um so it's it's really just sort of logistical elements like that we really wanted to make this as comprehensive of a retrospective as we could and and i believe we're actually going to be adding some more titles including the 500,000 which is the one film that mifune actually directed oh, i've um, never seen that I haven't either, so I'm excited to see it. Um, and I'm hopeful, yes, I'm hopeful that that and some other titles will actually be being added to the collection. And we do have to do that because just there, there might be a title that's not available the month that we've scheduled the this, this series for. And we might, our Poitiers series, for example, we've been adding titles in and taking them out um, 
over the last couple of months. And we just sort of have to do that because of availability sometimes. It seems like such a jigsaw puzzle. And, you know, obviously one of the great things about the service is that it has not just like incredible depth, but so much variety and diversity in terms of, you know, genre types and the different filmmakers. Like, how do you guys land on balance? How do you decide this is the right mix for this period? Here's what we think people will be clicking. Like, is it data driven or is it anecdotal? How do you guys make decisions around those things? Um, At this point, I would say that we are... You know, we do have access to some analytics, but I wouldn't say that we are really making many decisions driven by those, although it's fascinating to see what people are gravitating towards and what they're watching. Um, A lot of it is honestly, what would we want? What would we want to watch? What would people in the company want to watch? What, you know, we try to bring other people's voices in, other people who work at Criterion, um, our sort of larger kind of circle of critics and writers and people that work with us on our releases. Um, and then we we really sit down and a jigsaw puzzle is like the perfect way to describe it. Um, when we were first programming the service, we were literally, we literally had post-it notes and we were just moving them around. <laughs> now we have a slightly, you know, more streamlined digital version of that. Um, And we'll just sort of go through and look at the mix and, you know, say, is there something for the person who loves classic Hollywood? Is there something for the person who loves um, sort of new Hollywood 70s cinema does really, really well? Um, You know, is there something, is there, we haven't had like an animated film for a while or we, you know, what, we do these regular things, we do uh, regular Saturday matinees, regular Friday night double features and regular uh, short and feature pairings on Tuesdays. So all of those kind of help to sort of form the backbone of the programming. And then we kind of fill in the blanks as we go. One of the things that the channel makes me feel, and and I I watch a lot of films and I've seen a lot of films is that I have not seen anything is that I am like just way behind in my film literacy. Um, I think, Ha, ha, yeah, when, I mean, in your, in your role, absolutely. I feel exactly the same way. So. Okay, I'm, I'm happy to hear that. Like, that's why I'm what I'm sort of trying to drive at is how do you do this job when you realize that the more you know, ultimately equals the less you know, the more you discover someone new, the more it means you have 20 of their films to catch up on or a new, you know, subgenre made in the 40s and, you know, in Germany or something, you know, there, there's there's so much depth to the history of the medium. And um, for someone like you, how do you make the decisions feeling confident that you are doing it in a comprehensive or sophisticated way? No, it's so true. And truly, I work with just such brilliant people and I just feel like an idiot a lot of the time. But I kind of I kind of love that. I'd rather be in that position than the other way around. Um, but that also means that I have all these brilliant people that I can talk to and ask for advice and, you know, all of everyone who works at Criterion who's been immersed in the disc releases for a long time have become, these people have become experts on specific directors or specific genre just by virtue of working on these releases and having to do so much research. Um, And then, like I mentioned, we have writers that we work with who just seem to have seen everything. I mean, I'm sure they haven't, but it, it feels that way. And to be able to, recall such specific details about things. And those are often the people that we'll then call on as well to do an introduction for the channel um, and sort of go deep on, you know, whether it's Columbia Noir, Gene Arthur, or John Schlesinger, you know. Um, so we, I would say it's, I would say I have a broad sort of omnivorous approach to film myself. And then a lot of it is calling 
on the expertise of all the great people that I'm lucky enough to work with. Is there one program or package that you put together that really kind of opened your eyes in the year that you've been doing the Criterion Channel? There's so many. I sort of made a bit of a list earlier this week because I was talking to a few people um, with the anniversary coming up. There's there's not really any one. Um, I do really, really love um, the, the Women Filmmaker series. Um, I feel like that's opened my eyes to a lot of really great movies that I hadn't seen and a lot of, and, continu- and it just continues to be this sort of deep well of fascinating stories um, that I'm so excited to kind of even delve even more into this year. Um, some of the series that I've loved that we've put together, um, the Caught on Tape series, that was sort of a lot of 70s paranoia films, um, The Conversation and Blow Up and, wait, no, Blow Out. Um, <laughs> I yes, always get out. those two mixed up. That's <laughs> actually, they're actually a great double feature and, you know, Blow, yes. Blow Out is basically based on Blow Up, but I always mix up the names. Um, and um, that, yeah, that was a great series. Um, what else? Um, the Summer of 69, that was just three films, but it sort of just seemed to capture the zeitgeist um, when we played it in the summer of 2019. Um, people really loved that series. We, we do these um, streaming premieres as well, which have been playing really well. So um, we brought some films that come right off of their theatrical releases um, onto, onto the channel. So that's been a great opportunity to discover some great films or films that bring films that I've seen at festivals that I've really loved to the channel. So films like Diamantino and um, Long Day's Journey Into Night, um, just really brilliant um, feature films that are that are brand new um, that I think a lot of people are discovering for the first time on the service. Yeah, I love that aspect of it too. That's definitely where I saw An Elephant Standing Still for the first time because that's kind of a difficult film to see if you haven't been to a film festival. So it's great that you guys are doing that work. Um, I'm curious how responsive you can be uh, with the service. Obviously, when someone like Max von Sydow dies, you know, Janice has this incredible collection of his work already in its library. But, you know, are you able to kind of move quickly to launch a new program to address something along those lines? Yeah, we absolutely are. Um, Especially when it's uh, a filmmaker or a star um, who we already have a lot of the films, you know, featuring them or by them in our library. Um, Sadly, because of the field that we're in, we have this happen quite a lot. A lot of people pass away, um, unfortunately, but it, it is kind of nice that we're able to celebrate them almost immediately. It's just sort of bringing the films together, finding a, a great image, um, and then surfacing it on the channel so we can usually respond within 24 hours. Is there a level of art direction that goes into some of this in terms of like what people are seeing when they are seeing a new program? Like how much are you involved in the actual visual execution of the channel? In terms of creating the graphics, not at all, but <laughs> in term in terms of um, looking at them and giving thoughts on the direction at the outset and then feedback once they're created, I'm very involved. Um, I actually love that part of the job. Um, especially because I'll put together a series and then our brilliant editorial staff will write 
a fantastic paragraph that just makes it sound like such a great idea. And then our art department will put together a beautiful graphic that makes it, you know, so sort of seductive and appealing. And so then I feel like I've done something great, but it's actually just that they've done a brilliant job of making it <laughs> and the films are fantastic. So um, yeah, there's, there's a lot of thought that goes into the visuals that appear on the channel. I mean, the way that there's a lot of thought that goes into every sort of aesthetic product that Criterion put out into the world. Penelope, I'm asking filmmakers to recommend one film on the service right now. I have to ask you the same question. What is what is your what is your favorite film on on the Criterion channel at the moment? That is a completely impossible question. <laughs> um, I really love Kathleen Collins' film Losing Ground. Um, can you can you tell us about that a little bit? So it's one of the. It might be the first. Um, feature film made by a black woman filmmaker, um, an American black woman filmmaker. Um, and it's this very sort of sensual, intellectual, thoughtful exploration of, um, a a marriage and the sort of complexities of a marriage. Um, this uh, woman who's very sort of cerebral and she's a college professor. And then her husband played by Bill Gunn, who is very dreamy and amazing in this film um, is much more of a sort of sensualist. He's an artist and it kind of explores how they navigate the diff- those differences in their relationship. Um, and it's just, it, it just sort of unfolds beautifully. It really takes its time. It feels very authentic. It just, feels kind of unlike anything else. Um, it's very much sort of a world unto itself. And I'm also reading her short stories right now, which are called um, Whatever Happened to Interracial Love. Um, and they're incredibly beautiful as well. And the voice of her writing and the voice of her filmmaking are a beautiful complement to each other. Um, so I would really recommend both the film and the short stories. That's a, that's a great suggestion, uh, Penelope. <laughs> thank you for doing the work that you do. And thanks for chatting with me today. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks so much. Thank you to every single person that came through to participate in this mega episode of The Big Picture. We really appreciate it. And if I haven't sung its praises enough, if you can, please find a way to kick in on the Criterion channel. I promise you, you have the money to do so. You will not regret doing it. And from the sublime to the ridiculous, please tune into the big picture next week when Amanda and I will be talking about what is almost certain to be the last studio movie release for a long time. That's right. Trolls World Tour is coming to you very soon. See you next week.